Illinois' symbol of excellence in sports entertainment. Turn it on and rip the knob off. Guys, and welcome back to the Wrestling Memory Grenade. Now at episode number 100. That's right, we've hit the milestone, guys. 100 episodes of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. And I am your host, Ray Russell, a very ecstatic Ray Russell here this week. Happy to be back with you guys. I did take a week or two off, not for anything fun, mind you. I wish I could say that, but just like I said before, a lot going on right now in the world of Ray Russell, but the craziness starting to subside, thank God. But we'll push that all aside as we are here this week to celebrate 100 episodes of the Wrestling Memory Grenade still in the 1987 World Wrestling Federation Project. And today, we're going to change up the format a little bit. Going to have several special guests join the show. You may be familiar with some of those special guests as they've appeared on my regional wrestling podcast, where we talk the territories. I'm talking about Jamie Ward. You guys may know Jamie from the regional wrestling podcast. Right now, we're covering 1981 Georgia Championship Wrestling. Also, going to have a word with John McAdam, who has not only been a special guest on regional wrestling, but of course, he has his own podcast, Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam as part of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Looking forward to a fun conversation with Mr. McAdam, but it doesn't end there. We're also going to talk to Roman Gomez, formerly of the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast. Roman, now a special guest co-host on Regional Wrestling as we continue through 1986 in the Mid-South Territory. But it doesn't end there, guys. Last but certainly not least, you may even argue that I saved the best for last. I'm sure he would like to hear me say that anyway. You've heard me mention him oftentimes here on the program. Well, I made a phone call. To my surprise, I was wondering if he'd be a little trepidatious uh about coming on board for the show, but he seemed very eager. I'm talking about my one and only brother. Yes, indeed, my brother will join the show later on today as uh, we talk to Jamie and Roman and and John McAdam about their memories of 1987 of the World Wrestling Federation. I may dive into that with my brother also, but he's also here for another special reason. We're going to go through our timeline as kids growing up and some of the fun memories we have through professional wrestling, a true wrestling memory grenade here this week. And at the end of the program, I will be announcing where we're headed next, guys. We started off with the 1989 NWA project, jumped ahead to 1993 in the World Wrestling Federation, back into the 80s here in 1987 WWF. Where are we headed next as we continue through now the month of November in 87? We'll continue on with that on the next episode. Of the grenade. But the question remains where are you going next, Ray? You'll find out right here on today's program. Now, all of that said, can't wait to get the guests on the show. But in order to do that, I got to give you guys a friendly reminder that you can listen to the Wrestling Memory Grenade, the Regional Wrestling Podcast, Monday Warfare, and so much more, all part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network located over 
at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met. From Apple to Spotify, Google and beyond. You can also follow me on social media, guys. Follow me on Twitter or X or whatever they call it now. You can follow me there at Wrestling Grenade. That's an R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade on Twitter. Also, follow and like me at Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. Follow me on social media, guys, for all the latest goings on here at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. And I'm also constantly adding old school video clips and pictures from throughout wrestling history. And while you're at it, be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can find me there, youtube.com slash wrestling grenade, uploading new footage all the time. Now over 500 videos and counting on my YouTube channel and more to come very soon. And before we get into the good stuff, just another reminder, guys, now would be a tremendous time, a very helpful time, a very supportive time for you to aid me by becoming a WrestleCopia patron. And you can find me there at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address again, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Multiple tiers to choose from, but I'm only talking about that $5 all access tier. Gets you all sorts of gifts for just five bucks, including all of my insanely detailed book-like show notes, talking pages and pages of show notes for the Wrestling Memory Grenade, Monday Warfare, and the Regional Wrestling Podcast. Plus, you'll get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia. You can listen days and sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. But it doesn't end there. Remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show covering the 1989 NWA project includes enhanced sound quality and new content and conversation originally edited out of the initial broadcast due to time restraints, edited right back into the show. But that's still not all. You'll also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure. And of course, there's our Patreon-exclusive watch-along series covering many past WWF and WCW pay-per-views, Coliseum videos, Saturday Night's main events, Clash of the Champions, and so much more. So you get all of that, plus random bonus video drops, news clipping ads, and a whole lot more. All of that for the low, low price of just $5. No subscription. Cancel anytime. Show your support, guys. Please. Give it a try for a month. I think you'll like the content that I offer, and every penny of it goes right back here into paying the bills to keep the WrestleCopia Podcast Network up and running for the months and the years to come. And now, with all of that out of the way, we're going to jump into episode number 100. God, I can't say it enough. Can't believe we made it. But here we are. We've hit some bumps and snags along the way, like the time I got COVID pneumonia and almost died, but I don't want to talk about that anymore. Here we are, it's 2023, we're rolling into the later half of the summer here, still a bit hot outside, so I'm inside today talking with you guys, and our very first guest, you've heard him before on the Regional Wrestling Podcast, but he's far more known as the host of the Stick to Wrestling Podcast. Once again, as part of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, it's Stick to Wrestling's John McAdam. John, pleasure to have you here on the 100th edition of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. I'm, I'm definitely glad to be here, and congratulations for getting to 100 episodes. Yeah, not everybody can do that. I know I know someone by the name of uh, John McAdam can, but uh, I'm following in your footsteps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm up to like 269 episodes of the Stick to Wrestling podcast, and the uh, the goal is to get to 500 and then figure out what to, what to do from there. 
Right on, right on. So, John, in the past, I've done projects 1989 in the NWA, 1993 in the WWF. I did that as a favor to my old co-host. It is what it is. But now we've been rolling with 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation. I'm heading into the month of November, but that's okay. We can discuss the entire year. Spoiler alert, guys, just in case we talk Survivor Series or anything following the month of October. But I just wanted I wanted to go back in time. I remember. I know you live this vividly, and, I, and you keep things fresh in your mind further, much further back than 1987, so I know this has got to be right in the front of your head. Some of the big things that happened throughout the year, and I guess we can kick it off. I want to take you all the way back, John, to the beginning of the year. In January of 87, Saturday night's main event, Hogan and Orndorff inside the steel cage. Do you remember, do you, how, how do you recall that matchup in, in, back in the day? What, what did John McAdam of 1987 think about that one? Well, I mean, Orndorff was great, and I had no idea that he was having problems with his arm. I didn't realize or notice that one of his arms was appreciably uh, smaller than the other one. But Orndorff, I mean, it was a great series in 1986, and they it looked like they were finishing it as part uh, as part of that Saturday night's main event, having that cage match where their feet uh, touched the ground simultaneously. Right. The rumor has been that. That was the backup plan in case Andre the Giant just couldn't go for WrestleMania three. They would hold up the title or maybe even give Paul Orndorff the title. But Andre made it. Have you ever heard? Has it ever been confirmed to you? I mean, I know that's a, the huge rumor of the time, but I noticed Orndorff comes off of the house shows several weeks prior to WrestleMania for that arm injury. Where they, do you think maybe they were letting it maybe rehab a little heading in just in case they needed him for WrestleMania or urban legend altogether? What, what say you? I I believe the plan was in there. Paul Orndorff did a shoot interview where he kind of did a blank stare and said, I, you know, I know nothing about it. But, I mean, why else would they have that WrestleMania finish? Or not WrestleMania, Saturday Night's main event finish, excuse me. And, you know, why else would they leave Paul Orndorff completely off of WrestleMania? Right, open-ended. And it, he is certainly the most glaring omission from WrestleMania. Next in line, I, underneath Orndorff would have been Kamala from that lineup because Kamala had been working Hogan at the house shows leading in. But you're right, five months on top, selling out everywhere they went, Hogan and Orndorff. And it really culminated with that matchup. And I was just curious your take because I always loved, as a, as a kid at that time anyway, where they did the simultaneous deal where they both landed at the same time outside of the cage. So I just wanted to get your take on that. So we'll fast forward ahead. I know you remember this card. WrestleMania three, the Silverdome in Pontiac, Michigan. Uh, I Obviously, everybody talks about Hogan and Andre and, of course, Savage and Steamboat. What stood out to you? Was there anything beyond that that really caught you that maybe most people don't necessarily talk about? Or were that was that it for you, the two big matches? I, one thing that really stood out to me, if you went to any WWF show, including a WrestleMania show, you had filler. Even on WrestleMania, you had King Kong Bundy and SD Jones. You had uh, Ricky Steamboat and Matt Bourne. You right. had Jake Roberts and George Wells. There was no filler whatsoever on WrestleMania 3. It opened up with a hot tag match, the uh, Can-Ams against Morocco and Orton, which you know could be the number three uh match down on the Madison Square Garden show. So right. every match meant something. And, you know, even the Bundy and the Midgets, you know, was was not a, a squash match. It was not a throwaway match. So that was that was the biggest takeaway for me that I think that was the first WWF event ever where, you know, it, there was no filler whatsoever. Even the opener was a big match. Yeah, you know, and the my big takeaway from the card in general, not either you had your big matches and maybe the matches that weren't looked at as 
the big matches, everything seemed to have some kind of big play out at the end, whether it was the new dream team sort of uh, forming there and leaving Beefcake behind in that throwaway match with the Rougeos, if you will, or uh, the Butch Reed Coco Beware match ends with Tito coming out and Slick getting his uh, suit all torn up. So everything had something. Every match meant something somewhere. I mean, the, the hugeness of WrestleMania three cannot be overstated. I mean, they sold out the Pontiac Silverdome. I mean, there was not a, a seat left to be had. I've seen some of the, the photos from the back. I mean, it's just a sea of people. And <laughs> I mean, Andre versus Hogan, you know, it was the dream match. Even the most casual of fans, even non-fans wanted to see it. Yeah, those were probably the two biggest names that pretty much, I won't say everyone in the world knew, but Hulk Hogan was a, a household name. People people throw around, oh, Stone Cold was a household name, or John Cena was... No, Hulk Hogan was a household name, whether you watched wrestling whatsoever or not. I could tell my grandmother Hulk Hogan, she knew who that was. Later on down the road, she wouldn't have known what a Stone Cold or a John Cena was. And I'm not trying to take away from those guys or what Stone Cold made in merchandise or any of that, but just the name factor there. And Andre the Giant, literally and figuratively larger than life. Yeah, I mean, you've got Hogan, you know, he's all over the television. He's on Saturday night's main event, Letterman show. He was on Carson, uh, you know, escorting Cindy Lauper around on the Grammys. You're right. You couldn't have walked past a newsstand without seeing a picture of Hulk Hogan late 84, early 85. And I mean, he his name and legend just grew from there. Yeah, they even had him in the wraparounds on Saturday morning cartoons for a while there on NBC. Him and Mr. T jogging down New York City streets preparing for WrestleMania and things like that. So even the youngest of kids who maybe hadn't been introduced to wrestling yet were getting their introduction without realizing it. So Hogan was mainstream, man. I I, I just wanted to throw this in, you know, the week of before WrestleMania, Hogan and Mr. T appeared on the David Letterman show. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Letterman, he looks at the camera and he's like, now, I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's this event coming up called WrestleMania. I know m many of you haven't heard about it. And he was just being so sarcastic because it was being shoved down everyone's throat. But that's what you have to do to promote an event. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They did a hell of a job. Success it was. Or otherwise, who knows how things would have turned out. But here we are at WrestleMania 3 and talk about a success. Oh, my God, all of these people, whether it's 93,000, 78,000, mash it up in between, call it 85, call it whatever you will. Like you called it, John, a sea of people, insane amount of people in the, the pay-per-view. Now, WWF doing pay-per-views, and it really it, it's what gave Vince that power in the pay-per-view companies to to begin with here and kind of screw Crockett later on. I mean, it was such a big deal, Ray. I mean, before WrestleMania 3, wrestling on pay-per-view was as unproven as can be. The uh, What was the event they had in Chicago in November 1985 with the Rolls Royce? Wrestling Classic. The Wrestling Classic. Wrestling yeah. Classic. Thank you. I mean, that bombed on pay-per-view. WrestleMania 2 didn't do particularly well on pay-per-view, so... Pay-per-view in the 80s, it was like this new toy that no one really knew what to do with. Like, we all thought we'd be watching concerts on pay-per-view. That kind of flopped. Right. But WrestleMania 3 was such an amazing success that you're right. Vince McMahon could say, hey, I'm having an event uh, Thanksgiving night, and if you put Crockett on, you can't have my event. Well, if you're just out there doing business, who are you going to take? The guy whose promotion just you know, had WrestleMania three or an unproven Jim Crockett and losing Starcade 87 the way Crockett did 
had a lot to do with that company going out of business. Yeah, it certainly did. We haven't gotten to that yet. Actually, we'll be getting to that in the next few episodes of The Grenade. But I, I, like I said, kind of a spoiler alert heading in because if you guys don't know by now, the, the whole story is right there. Like John just broke it down. It's the WrestleMania 3. Without WrestleMania 3, I don't know how powerful Vince would have been to say, you show my programming over Jim Crockett and, and Starcade here in 87. So it's all goes back to WrestleMania 3. It really does. Um, supposedly, and I believe this, Bill Watts took a look at WrestleMania 3 and he said, mm-hmm. I'm out of here. That's I'm right. closing the doors. That's and the story. He, you know, I mean, it makes too much sense. I mean, by the end of March, he had sold to Crockett. He just, you know, and Watts wasn't a mark for the business. He wasn't a mark for himself. He's just like, I can't compete with this. I'm out of here. Yeah, I, I could imagine a lot of people looked at that and said, I need to be a part of that or I, I'm done. Like by Bill Watts sells to Crockett there and Paul Bosch basically forced to go with Vince because Crockett really had no interest in Paul Bosch at the time, Houston Wrestling. So Bosch moves over briefly with Vince there. We talked about that throughout the year of 87 and everything that kind of fell in, in line there. Ted DiBiase, the story goes, he saw WrestleMania three and he calls Watts and says, we're on a handshake deal, man, and I, I got to go up there and Watts told DiBiase, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't, don't jump just yet because, because I just saw WrestleMania three, too, and I'm about to sell this thing to Crockett. And I kind of need you, your name is a bargaining chip chip when I'm doing this. And of course, DiBiase does the handshake with Crockett and then winds up jumping to Vince anyway. Did, Ted DiBiase did an interview with Gary Cabetta and 90%, he confirmed 90% of what you just said. He didn't say he had a handshake. He, he did. My understanding is he had a, a paper, legal contract with Bill Watts and okay. as soon as DiBiase uh, saw WrestleMania and this is straight from Ted DiBiase he called Watts and he said hey I want out and Watts just told Watts told him just hang on just get, you know hang on just a couple of weeks he didn't tell him about the sale or anything like that but he mm-hmm. was just like Ted hold on and uh, according to DiBiase he had a conversation with uh, Crockett and right. he hadn't really decided on anything and then he met with Vince. Vince gave him the old, you know, I give opportunities, not guarantees. Put your name on the contract, and then we'll decide what to do with you. And DiBiase said he was leaning towards going with Crockett, and then Pat Patterson called him. And Pat says, you know, Ted, you need to come here. Vince is going to tell you what it is until you sign, but he's going to give you the gimmick he would give himself if he were a professional wrestler. And uh, that's a great segue because the next topic I wanted to touch on was the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase, those early vignettes. In fact, the last episode of the grenade, we just covered episode 99. I was just played some sound. Now the audio doesn't do the video justice of a one young youngster by the name of Sean, who was uh, asked to dribble a basketball 15 times for $500 makes it to 14, but doesn't quite get to 15 courtesy of DiBiase there and, you don't get the money if you don't get the job done. As Sean learned there, of course, he did get the money <laughs> off camera. But uh, just I wanted your take of the original vignettes of the Million Dollar Man and what you thought of. You knew Ted DiBiase and, and his character and his wrestling persona heading into the WWF. Was it hard for you to adjust to the gimmick? Uh, what did you think of it early on? Right from right from out of the gate, I thought it was fantastic. It was it was a gimmick. But it wasn't so over the top that you couldn't believe it. It was almost like the perfect wrestling gimmick. It, it, it pushed the boundaries of being over the top without quite getting there. And obviously, it was just a great, great gimmick. 
Yeah, so I, just, I was just curious if someone who, you know, followed wrestling prior to rather and realized there were more wrestling companies out there rather than just the WWF. A lot of people just kind of thought, oh, these guys came out of nowhere. And now they're back in those days. These guys came out of nowhere. And now they're boom. They're, they're part of this wrestling company. And this is their gimmick. But a lot of people that have been wrestling fans for years saw these guys for months, if not years, in other territories and promotions and things prior to these gimmicks. So I'm just wondering how it was to adjust. But I love the gimmicks. Looking back, I appreciate them more as an adult and I did as a kid as a kid what an evil bad guy you know that's what they wanted you to think but as an adult you just kind of chuckle at the evilness of some of the nonsense he did to these kids and you didn't get the job done so you don't get the money yeah exactly you know I I remember the first time I ever did that Billy White Wolf was one of of my favorite wrestlers as a kid Uh and Ken Patera Ended his his wrestling career in 1977 with the swinging neckbreaker. Well, then in 1981, I get a copy of one of the After magazines, and I see a picture of this guy, Sheik Adnan El Casey, and I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. And I'm, I'm like comparing pictures of Billy White Wolf to this guy, and I'm like, oh wow, he's he's now Sheik Adnan, and I would talk about this on the next stick to wrestling, but you know, Tiger Chung Lee debuts in the WWF in 1983. I'm like, wait a minute. I, I, I know this guy. And I go back and look at a, a magazine from 1976 and there's a picture of Kim duck. So it, it it happened for me before those wrestling doppelgangers out there. I swear. (laughs) (laughs) And this time, you know, it's, it is Ted DiBiase. He's just, you know, now is a millionaire somehow. And you just go along with the storyline. Let's uh, let's roll on a couple more things. I'm going to try to get in here with you, if that's okay with you. Sure. All right. First, I was really quick. I want to touch on Demolition, Axe and Smash. Got their start in January. Obviously, the original Smash was Moondog Rex, Randy Colley. Was it a blink and miss, you'll miss it moment, John? Did you even notice that they changed Smash? Did you maybe miss wrestling that week and you didn't even notice there was an original <laughs> Smash? Or was it all along? Because it was pretty obvious, even through the paint. Even to me, the first time I ever saw it, that that was Moondog Rex under that paint, which is why it got switched. But what was your take? Do you remember that? Did you notice it immediately? And also, did you think Demolition was going to go on to become maybe not three-peat as champions, but be something more than just another tag team here as 87 progressed? Um, yeah, not really. I mean, they, they seem to be, even though they weren't the tag team champions, they Mm -hmm. seem to be the number one heel team, uh, before they turned. So, and I did notice that, you know, I did pick up that it was Moondog Rex and actually kind of picked up that it was mass superstar. I was like, okay, the, we no longer have the super machine. He's now part of demolition. And I did notice when they switched out, uh, Barry Darso and I was like, oh, wow. Crusher Khrushchev is now in the WWF. Yeah, that was kind of an easy <laughs> the Crusher Khrushchev move over to Smash. He had to grow that hair in. But it was a few years there, probably an after mag or something along those lines, before I realized that the Mask Superstar was, in fact, Axe. Took me a little bit. But again, I was a kid. No, the same here. I was uh, 21 years old. I, I didn't pick up right away. I, I got it from the after mags, too. They kind of pointed out that, yeah, that's Mass Superstar. And once I got that, once I knew he was in the WWF, I'm like, oh, now he's in Demolition. All right, let's do uh, let's do Can-Am Connection or Strike Force. Strike Force, obviously the far more polished team, but I found over the year that that it just felt like Can-Ams were far more over with the fans. It was what it was, and they were doing a lot more unique double team type maneuvers. And once Tito joins in with Martel, it's more of two singles guys doing individual work. 
Yeah, I mean, if the Can-Ams were Tom Zink and Rick Martell, two really good-looking guys. And, I mean, Tom Zink won Mr. Minnesota as a bodybuilder. And when Zink left, I know, look, I know Tito Santana is was way better than Tom Zink. Right. But it took a little bit something, something off the tag team, I thought. It was, it was almost like, you know, Tito was the substitute. He wasn't the original guy. What I heard in 1987 was that Tom Zink, Tom Zink quit, says he quit because he was unhappy with his money. He wasn't getting as, as much as Rick Martell. Right. The story I heard in 1987 was that he made the Islanders kind of unhappy with him. And I've been around Tom. I can see where that was coming from. He was a funny guy, but I could tell how he, you know, how he could run rub someone the wrong way and supposedly Tama and Haku were beating the crap out of him every night and he just got tired of it and went home. Yeah, I heard I didn't heard what he did to upset them, but I did hear that maybe they were roughing him up a little in the ring. I don't know if that's, you know, fact or not. Like you said, Zenk usually uh, made claims that it was all money situation, but either way it just felt like strike force. Like you said, Tito Santana was just the replacement for Tom Zink, which is silly and it offends a lot of people. But if you go back and actually watch it, you'll see what I mean, especially with the overness with the fans. Uh, two more pieces of business here for you, John, and I'll let you slide. Uh, first, I just want real briefly, the, the hockey talk. Or- yeah, let's do Hockey Talk, man. He gets turned heel by the fans almost immediately after debuting. But I want to fast forward. He wins the Intercontinental title from Ricky Steamboat. And now we're into the feud. The Macho Man Randy Savage turns heel. Hockey shoves Elizabeth down to the mat. Of course, that leads to the formation of the Mega Powers. We can touch on all of that real quick if you want. Just the Hockey Talk man's heat. Uh, what did you think when you saw him shove Elizabeth down? And of course, that formation, that storyline that developed at the end of that Saturday night's main event in October with the formation of the mega powers when the mania met the madness i mean the the mega powers were great they really were great they carried the wwf in 88 and then you know the inevitable breakup in 1989 um you know and, and elizabeth getting shoved down i mean i'm glad they waited for that and they did it the right way savage was still technically a heel when it happened wrestling another heel and you know that really got the the baby's face sympathy for him we just covered that a couple episodes ago. I, I dissected that entire edition of Saturday okay. Night's Been Event. And it, the first 30 minutes of that show is just must-see TV, the whole story. The match with Honky, which is not always good to ha- – you know, good way. you can't get a good match out of Honky each and every time out. But they, they tell the story perfectly there with the hearts coming out and everything that leads to the El Cabong, the guitar over the head of Savage. Like you said, Elizabeth going down to the mat. She runs to the back, goes and grabs Hogan. Out comes the Hulkster. They clear the ring. There's a little stare down between the two, but then the handshake, you know, that, that I, I refer to as the handshake that made time stand still if only for a moment – And there it was, the formation of the Mega Powers. So I want to thank you again, John, for being a part of this 100th edition of The Grenade. And I just really wanted to get you on here and get your your memories, your take on some of these things. Thanks for adding a little light to the DiBiase situation, the Tom Zink situation. And you're always welcome back anytime. Love talking wrestling with you. Of course, uh, for those who don't know, me and John have done WWF, WWWF in 1977 over on Regional Wrestling in the past. And John, you're, you're show stick to wrestling is just amazing as well well thank you and i i want to make a uh, a recommendation to all of your listeners if you have um not wwe network peacock Peacock. if you have peacock they have the primetime wrestling episodes from 1987 go to early 1987 i want to say like 
middle of January, there's a match between Honky Tonk Man and Mr. X from Toronto. And it's it's a must-see match because the fans boo everything the babyface honky-tonk <laughs> man does. It is amazing to watch. And you want to talk about the fans turning a guy. I mean, perfect example. Yeah, and it's funny because, you know, as I've done this show all throughout 87, I cover every episode of Superstars Wrestling Challenge in primetime. But I also try to go through all of the televised house shows as well and dissect some of that stuff. And and even though I'm heading into November, that is one of the matches that stick out in my head. And clearly yours as well, because you're right. It is a defining moment. And okay, we got to turn this guy, pal. Because Honky Tonk yeah. Man is, uh, you're right. I mean, I, you would have thought that he was the heat he's getting here in November of 87 was the heat he was getting there in the Maple Leaf Garden all the way back in, well, I think it was recorded like December of 86 or something. But yeah, it's crazy. That that sounds right. And yeah, I mean, and in, you know, here's Vince McMahon. I mean, look, he loved the Honky Tonk Man character. The fans made it clear we don't like this. And Vince is like, okay, well, I'll just push him as a heel. I'm pushing him. I don't care. I love it. Well, John, I want to thank you again for taking a few minutes out of your time this week to join me for this 100th episode of The Grenade. Uh, I wanted to have a few guests on here. And uh, top of the line, I mean, when I think of 1980s wrestling and, and just all of the uh, insight that you have, man, in the old WWF time frame, well, all the territories, really, John, but specifically this era, I remember going back in time, back in the 90s, the old internet, and kind of reading a lot of your write-ups and things of all this stuff. So it's fun having you as part of this. No, oh, thank you for having me. And again, congratulations to get for getting to number 100. Thank you very much. Once again, John McAdam, the Stick to Wrestling podcast as part of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. You got it. Thank you once again, John McAdam. As we roll on, perhaps another familiar voice. You guys may know him from my regional wrestling podcast, where we talk the territories as part of the current ongoing Georgia Championship Wrestling 1981 project. I'm talking about Mr. Jamie Ward. Jamie, welcome aboard this milestone edition of The Grenade. Uh, it's my pleasure, Ray, to be asked to be on this special show of yours. Well, I'm just uh, happy to have you. I know it's been a busy summer for both of us, but it's great to get this in. I've got a few guests here this week, but I was looking forward to talking to you, Jamie, because we talk so much about the territory era. We're doing Georgia 1981 on the Regional Wrestling Podcast right now, but now we're going to jump ahead a little bit into the national expansion, the Hulkamania era, if you will, 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation, if you're ready. I'm ready to go. All right. So where else to start, Jamie? But let's go back to that faithful night in the Pontiac Silverdome, Michigan. You know the place. You know the uh, pay-per-view I'm referring to. It's WrestleMania three, And, of course, Hogan, Andre, Savage, Steamboat, and all that good stuff. But, Jamie, do you remember where you were when you saw it? Did you see WrestleMania three live? Did you have to wait till it came out on Coliseum Video? What were your first, how did you watch WrestleMania three for the first time? And what were your memories of that show? Uh, fortunately, I got to see it live at a friend's house and uh, who lived about 45 minutes away from me. Both my father and I went to their house um, at the time, along with working at the post office, I worked at a local shopping mall as a maintenance guy. And the guy whose house we went to was actually the owner of the candy store. So we only referred to him as the candy man all the time. And we didn't have pay-per-view down in my neck of the woods yet. Fortunately, he did, and we had always talked wrestling. Wow. So he invited a bunch of us from the shopping center up to uh, his house in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. Wow, that's and, pretty cool. Uh, Just uh, by happenstance kind of ran into the situation. And wow, right in front. You, it was destiny, Jamie, that you got to be part of watching WrestleMania 3 Live, I guess. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had to pull a lot of strings to get off of work. I was, <laughs> you know, I was working at the post office downtown in Philadelphia at the time. I wasn't out of my local office yet. I asked the supervisor if I had off, if I could get off. He said, absolutely not, but I can't control if you call out sick. I was going to say, the statute of limitation uh, has certainly elapsed, so you could tell us here if you played hooky that day from work uh, just to watch WrestleMania 3. So fun story already right out of the gate, Jamie skipping work in order to uh, partake in the goodness of what was WrestleMania number three, if you listen to Ricky Steamboat anyway. So there you go. You found a way to watch the pay-per-view. You couldn't get off work, but they couldn't keep you from calling off sick. Maybe you were, maybe you weren't. Who's to say? But there it is. You're there live. It, it, it comes on your screen. Can you recall that far back? 30, what, six years or so. Do you remember the first thought when you saw that crowd and everything that was going, all the pageantry right out of the gate? I was like, wow, I'd never seen anything like that. And and Vince announcing Aretha Franklin. Yes. <laughs> Aretha Franklin. Vince was really into it. And, <laughs> he was, and ev- why wouldn't he be? Room, everybody in the room was was into it. I mean, we had, you know, I was probably the, the smartest smart fan quotes right. there. And, but everybody else was all big fans too. And they, they followed, you know, the WWF as much as I did at the time. And I want to say there was about 10 of us in this guy's um, back room, you know, watching it. And, um, you know, and, and just to see, and this is probably one of the first times that I saw a show live where it was kind of daylight and it was weird to see right. it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, I'd seen the, the, um, the Dallas shows where they held them at the, um, the cotton bowl. Cotton bowl, Right. And you know, they're in the daylight, but it just wasn't the same because I saw all that on videotape. I didn't see any of that live. Actually just seeing it live on pay-per-view was, or seeing anything on pay-per-view for the first time. Yeah. was quite wild. I spoke with uh, one of your buddies and he'll appear here later on the same edition of the grenade. And we were talking about WrestleMania three and the, the how the visual changed over the course of the day. It was daylight, and then the sky became dark blue right around intermission time. And then by the time Hulk and Andre came out, it was pitch black outside. So very cool visuals. It's like it got dark just in time for the main event, and just what a sight to behold overall. What sticks out in your mind beyond Savage and Steamboat? I mean, were you critiquing matches back in 1987? Be real, Jamie. I mean, were you like, wow, that was a five-star classic? Or did you know you saw something special there? Certainly something very different from anything we had ever seen pretty much anywhere, but most specifically the WWF at that point. Yeah, though I had been reading The Observer for four or five years at that point, I still wasn't into all the uh, star ratings and things like that. So... To, to me personally, Andre Hogan was like a five-star match, but I was in the, each match, and each match just ramped it up to get to that match. Right. Um, my favorite one of the night was probably Piper and Adrian Adonis. Yeah, the bumps Adonis and Jimmy Hart taken there, they're so underrated. Nobody really talks about that match because if you go back and actually watch the physicality as far as the connecting of the moves, the, the very loose sleeper holds that were applied in that match – you can kind of pick it apart and maybe even trash it, but the backstory going into months and months of build from Piper returning from the, you know, making the movie or, you know, taking his summer off like he normally did to re- realizing that the Piper's pit had been replaced by the flower shop and the whole feud and the, and uh, Piper busting the crutch over Adonis's arm, then writing him off. Adonis essentially, depending on who you ask, was fired there for a few weeks in the fall. And then they brought him back and they, we get to see the feud and 
Piper did those last Piper's pits leading into WrestleMania 3, basically telling the world goodbye. We knew he was leaving, win or lose. And then we get the hair versus hair deal and everything involved. And going back, if you listen to the crowd in that match, oh my God, they eat it up. Every bump Adonis is taking and Jimmy Hart right in the stride. In fact, I'd gotten so accustomed to the Jimmy Hart post-1987 that I forgot just how much bumping Jimmy could do. I mean, he was amazing out there with, with Adonis taking the flips over the top rope with him and everything. Yeah, Jimmy wasn't afraid to take a bump back at that time. And, of course, just like everybody else, the older you get, the less you want to do. <laughs> well, I'm not blaming, although he was, like, you know, <laughs> what, however old he was in WCW when he had to climb, like, 50 feet in the air on that car, get those Carson Silver Dollars. Uh, in the John Tenta Big Bubba match. That's many years later, though. I don't know who, who constructed that pole, but what a rib on uh, Earth. Could you imagine Earthquake or, or Big Boss Man climbing like 30 feet on a pole? I don't know. But Jimmy. I think what it's snapped in half if they had legitimately going up there. <laughs> oh, man. God bless Jimmy. But yeah, it, that was uh, a fun match. And you don't hear that people bring that one up as much as the big two, if you will. But that was like the third main event on the show Piper and Adonis, no doubt about it. Yeah. And to me, at that point, Piper was my number one favorite all the way back to Georgia Championship Wrestling in 81 right. when he first arrived. I actually like Piper when he came in for that short WWF run in 79. See, I was going to ask you, I know you're, some of your big names, you're, some of your favorites were Piper and Michael Hayes and things of that nature. And Roddy Piper saying goodbye here. How did you feel at the time? Did you think, eh, he'll be back. This is wrestling. I mean, that wasn't really established at that point yet that people would leave and come back. So did you feel like this is it? This is truly the end of Roddy Piper? I'm sure he really believed it was himself because he thought he was going to go hit it big in Hollywood. It didn't work out. And obviously, thank God, we get more Roddy Piper by 89, 90 and uh, whatnot. But just what do you remember your emotions when Piper was done? Did you think this was the end of Roddy Piper? Yeah, I thought the Roddy Piper I saw every week, this was the end of it. Wow. Um, I was disappointed I wasn't going to get to see him. I was disappointed when he took the sabbatical to go do the movies. And I was hoping that he would come back someday, but I, I really thought this this was the end. No more Roddy Piper every week, but maybe he'd pop back every now and then, you know, as a special guest, kind of, and maybe even do a match or two, just like uh, Bruno and countless others that uh, we had known about, like a, a Bill Watts who would come back every so often. For a match, and I, I really thought that's how Piper was going to go, but he does return. Talk to me your initial impressions, your memories of the Danny Davis heel turn from referee to wrestler. Did it get over with you? Did you get heel heat for Danny there when he did the heel turn, or did you think it was something awesome, something different, at least for you know New York standards to see a gimmick like that where the referee goes heel, joins a faction, kind of tries to learn to become a wrestler. Of course, Danny had wrestled for years under the hood as Mr. X, but it's just uh, it's amazing how much heat he had. And then I, I kind of blame Vince and company. They they sort of dropped the ball. He gets all that heat. He gets in there at WrestleMania three. They have him pin. I think it was Dynamite Kid, but they have him pin one of the Bulldogs and he scores the win, ultimate heat there, and then they really do nothing with him. Maybe on the house shows, they allude to maybe a feud with Mr. T. That goes nowhere because T leaves. They almost allude to a feud with Jim Duggan. Doesn't really happen. Duggan gets fired, but he was also feuding with the foreign guys at the time as well. And then they even have him steal Damien. And I had never remembered that till I just went back and did the shows myself. Somewhere around September, I think it was, on TV, he goes and steals Damien from ringside because... He 
doesn't like the animals at ringside. He doesn't believe in that. Doesn't believe in the haircutting and all this other nonsense. If the real referees aren't going to do anything about it, he's going to do it. He goes out there, tries to steal Damien, gets up the aisle. Jake gets the snake back, but then Jake gets suspended for failing a drug test. So another feud <laughs> written off. So Danny Davis, you know, a lot of uh, bad luck, I guess, a string of bad luck as far as feuds go. Some of the ideas they had for him, but it's like they they didn't capitalize after WrestleMania three the heat he had. Were you happy about that? Were you not a big fan of the Danny Davis storyline, or did you want to see it do more? Oh no, I absolutely wanted to see more out of it. I mean, I had already known, you know, through the sheets that he was wrestling as Mister X and you know whatever else, right? And plus, looking at the body type, like you kind of figured it out back then that they were the same guy. But yeah, I was expecting them to do more with him. But as you just laid out, it just sounds like he was a victim of a lot of bad luck going forward. And they just probably got to the point where, all right, we could just do something else. We don't have to mess with this any longer. Well, I'll put it this way. WrestleMania 3 takes place at the end of March 1987. Danny Davis, they, they don't promote his first, quote unquote, first singles match until I believe it's October TV. So you're talking about a big jump. Meanwhile, Danny's been working the house shows the entire time. And he's, you know, some of those matches have even appeared on primetime, but I guess cable doesn't count. It's only about syndicated TV. So he doesn't really appear in the ring on syndicated television until like the end of October uh, after, you know, having a match at WrestleMania three, which is just insane. But that's the way they did things back then. They actually ignored things and other things they beat to death. And this was one of the things they ignored that he was actually had matches on primetime wrestling. Yeah, they did that quite a bit uh, throughout this time period. Just It's like primetime's there, but it doesn't count, sort of. I, I, I guess. mean, look how many... <laughs> I, the guys I'm about to mention, I'm not sure if they were in there like in 87. Right. But how, how many times did you see Al Perez and Scott McGee and Scott Casey and guys of that ilk on primetime wrestling, Mr. Wrestling 2? But you'd never see them on the regular television shows. The, the right. syndicated and, and shows Dixon, on, well, you know... It's Dick Slater's another one, the rebel Dick Slater character. Maybe right out of the gate, maybe back in 86 when he first appeared, he probably was in syndicated. I haven't really dove into that area uh, on the show, but uh, I can tell you this, you know, he's there for another good half year into 87 and you'd never know it because he doesn't appear one time on syndicated TV in those, say, five, six months that he's still there with the company. Meanwhile, I mean, he pops up on primetime every now and then from the house shows, but Dick Slater, you have Dick Slater on your roster, and he can't even make it to the syndicated television. Yeah, there's something that uh, never occurred to me, that he wasn't on the syndicated television. Yeah, And, it's and I was fun. still recording all that stuff that time, but I was blowing through most of it. Right, and it's good because you have that memory going back so far. I know you lived through all of this, so... I can ask you your memories and not just your thoughts of how this was because you remember all of this because you had been longtime super fan by this point. I mean, like you said, you were in the dirt sheets already. So you kind of had the backstage gossip of what was going on, plus what you were watching on the TV. So it's kind of fun to talk to someone who had all of that at the time because I didn't have a dirt sheet. I didn't know what one was until like 1995. So I'm a little late to the, the game as far as that goes, but I'm just curious to pick your brain on some of these guys and the next name up. And I got a couple more for you here, Jamie, and uh, then we'll uh, move on with the show. But the next one has to be the honky tonk man. And the reason I bring him up, I'm, I'm going to try to ask everybody this question. Had you ever seen, can you remember a time where a baby face made his debut and he was so hated by the fans right out of the gate? 
that they had no option but to turn them heel. We've seen cool heels become so cool that you have no option but to turn them face. It happened to Jake in Mid-South, happens to Jake here in the WWF, happens to the Macho Man later here in 87 as well. But to have a babyface make his debut, an Elvis impersonator, if you will, one of Vince's gimmicks, that's one of his favorite gimmicks that he created, his vision, pal. If you want to call that a vision, impersonating Elvis, a lot of guys did it. But, but I'm just curious, like, when you were watching this, you were living this as it was happening, were you aware, did you hear the boos? Do you remember that far back? Do you remember hearing the boos while the babyface hockey talk man was out there? And what did you think of his heel run? Because early on, I mean, I know later on, if people saw Honky in 89, 90, eh, whatever. But 87, 88, that heel heat was real. Oh, I enjoyed the heel Honky. I mean, when he first debuted, you know, I was with everybody else. I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and and you could tell that they tried to put camera on fans that, you know, were trying to cheer, but this was one of the best things Vince ever did was turning him heel. Cause I enjoyed heel honky. Yes. Toward the end of the run, his time had come and gone, but that early stuff after uh, he originally turns, like when he nails Jake with the guitar and knocks right. him out for most of 87, mm-hmm. I thought that stuff was pure magic and his interviews and riding in the pink Cadillac and singing, singing his own song and everything. That was good stuff. It's kind of funny because you've seen people, the fans sort of force you to turn people. Even back then, you don't really have much of an option. Turning, like I said, it's turn Jake heel to face. But did you ever see, can you remember in your memory bank, a time where somebody was changed from a face to heel or heel to face so quickly? I mean, that heel heat was deafening by the end of 86. He'd been there two, three months and the crowd just hated him. You know, I talked to John McAdam about this, and he was talking about a match between Honky and Mr. X. I believe it was up in Maple Leaf Garden. And the and, and, and it aired on primetime, so it's definitely out there on the Peacock. Go check it out, guys. But no, the, the noise is deafening the boos. Every move he does, it's like they're all smart marks booing him. It's not the case, but that's just how much they hate him up there in Toronto. They're booing the living hell out of this guy, and he hasn't even made the turn yet at that point. Sometimes you got to... Remember, the fans are smarter than you think they are. And they saw an act they just didn't like. And again, back to Vince. Yeah. He was, at least Vince was smart enough to say, hey, this isn't working. Let's but turn I, him heel and, and see what happens. And it, it worked. Yeah, hockey had heat before he made the heel turn. So it really worked out. It was like a double turn of sorts. Hockey and Jake there on the snake pit. Jake was slowly turning face, yeah. hockey slowly turning heel. I guess he had made the heel turn by that point, but that solidified it that day when he bashed that guitar over the head of Jake the Snake Roberts. Uh, man, that was yeah, months ago to here your, on the show. Back to your question. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't answer. No, sure. I had never seen anything like that before. Uh, even in all the tapes I'd gotten from territories, nothing reminded me of the way Vince handled that. You saw guys come into territories and instantly turn, but sure. there was usually a purpose behind those turns. Right. It was it was planned not, coming in. Right. Not just because they couldn't get over. And that's what this was, plain and simple. He wasn't getting over as a face. And I'm sure the contracts weren't written like they are now with, with all that guaranteed money. He could have just cut him loose. But evidently, he remembered him as the Kiss Demon in Memphis and decided, that's, hey, it, it had to be maybe, what it was. <laughs> yeah, maybe we could still make some money out of this guy. Plus... Having him, you know, Vince, in the back of his perverted mind, he was putting the screws to Jerry Lawler because that was his cousin. There you go. Yeah, and he was doing that middle rope fist drop quite a bit 
uh, there early on in his uh, in his yes. run here with the company as well. So uh, good call there, Jamie. So I want to fast forward a little later into the year now. We talked about this on the phone a few weeks ago. Bam Bam Bigelow comes in here, and man, he is a, no pun intended, but he's a house of fire. I mean, they build this guy up. He gets those vignettes, the battle for Bam Bam. Every manager in the company wants a piece of him, and it winds up they're all fooled. Bam Bam goes babyface and acquires Sir Oliver Humperdinck. Weird fit, I know, but he's stuck with Humperdinck there for a while, even over into Crockett, Turner, whatever you want to call it. But you told me that you actually attended one of Bam Bam's first matches. Now I went back and looked this up. You said you, it was in Wildwood, maybe, you, you went to? Yeah, I believe it was in Wildwood during the summer of 87. Uh, so Bam Bam was pretty lucky, Jamie. I looked, and it looks like his debut match with the company is actually in his hometown of Asbury Park, New Jersey. So how, how lucky is he for that? So just a sea show, sea town show, but uh, makes a debut in his hometown nonetheless. And he's killing guys like C.V. and Paul Roman, things like that on the house shows early on. But that Wildwood show is one of his earliest matchups. And I don't know if you were really paying attention when you were watching it, but did you realize at the time that when you watched him, he was still doing the heel gimmick because they were bringing Bam Bam in initially as a heel before some injuries happened, suspensions, all sorts of, Crazy things happen, and they're forced to call an audible and switch things and decide Bam Bam is going to come in as a babyface once the TV stuff starts. But at that point in the house shows early on, he was doing heel matches. He was working as a heel. So I don't know if you recall him working as a heel or just your first memories of seeing him, or had you already seen him prior to this in your tape collection? I mean, I knew that that, that night in Wildwood, he definitely wrestled as a heel, and I already knew who he was, you know, from from the Memphis stuff and from the world-class stuff. Yeah, I figured at the very least you'd probably seen him in the Memphis territory already, but I was just curious because there was nothing like him. If, if you were one of those fans, the casual wrestling fan who only knew that the WWF existed because of the rock and wrestling era and they just kept watching, there was a lot of those. I knew a lot of those people in school and outside of school. But So here you are, you've seen this guy, you know who he is, but it's you really can't say enough about his agility for the time, especially a guy his size, just the stuff he was able to do and the speed in which he was able to do it. Oh, he was he was quite impressive. I really thought he was going to be a bigger star than that he turned out to be overall in wrestling. I, I don't know if it was something behind the scenes where he had a bad attitude, but he had everything, just like you said, the speed, the agility. I even thought he had a good promo, but for some reason it all just didn't work. I mean, Tom Robinson and I ran in him backstage at the Eddie Graham um, Sports Arena in 89 in Tampa or in Orlando. And we're backstage and we're getting pictures with guys. And we said, you know, we walked up to him, started talking to him. You know, Tom mentioned how we knew Larry Sharp and stuff. And at that, you know, when we got done talking and we asked for a picture, he said $25. Wow. We're like, really? 25 bucks? That was the Larry Sharp in him, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I guess that's what came out. And Italian Stallion and Brett Sawyer were standing right there. And they're like, come on, Scott, just give him the picture. And he goes, no, 25 bucks, that's it. And then he walked away. And then those two guys are like, uh, he, they're like, oh, he's a real fucking asshole, that guy. <laughs> wow. And, and neither one ever wanted to work with him. Oh, really? Okay. Well, see, I'd never heard those stories before. Very cool to, uh, I'm glad I brought him up. I never heard that stuff before about Bam Bam, but I'm not really shocked, especially you know, in those younger years. And he was certainly trained to certain, think a certain way underneath Larry Sharp, who I believe until he got to Vince was taking a percentage of his money. So I, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure uh, right, well, changed Larry there. traveled to Memphis and 
world class. And, you know, Tom and I probably just weren't thinking at the time. And right. We mentioned the wrong name, I guess, and that kind of set them off. But then again, if you're Bam Bam Bigelow and, and you've been in the WWF, you just got finished a short tenure in WCW, and now you're working for Dusty Rhodes in Florida, probably for $25 for the night. That'll turn somebody sour real quick. Yeah, and I think Bam Bam was finishing up with New Japan. He he was already starting to work some of the house shows, then he went back for his final tour of New Japan before he arrived in the WWE. They were doing vignettes already by that point, I believe, for him. He was still over in New Japan. And Inoki actually paid Bammer, I think, something like five grand extra, like a bonus to do a job, you know, for obviously for the cameras, for, for all the pictures in the magazines and everything, but to do a job for Inoki or for Inoki to go over on Bigelow on his way out as he, you know, made his debut on WWF TV. So Inoki could say, I beat this, you know, Big Bam Bam Bigelow, because there were certainly major plans here for Bigelow. You could tell he was going over. They immediately threw in some of the bigger hosses in there, having him go over on Bundy, pinning King Kong Bundy, pinning Sika, pinning Killer Khan. I mean, any all the bigger guys. Bam Bam was establishing that he was the best of the big men. Then they have that 10-man battle royal on TV out of nowhere. And the last elimination is Bam Bam eliminating Bob Orton. And man, I can't even remember who the other guy was right now, but he eliminates two guys at the same time with a, with a backdrop on both of them, flings them both out. Very impressive. If you don't know that they're cooperating. So Bigelow was just, the sky was the limit and it felt, you know, he's on Hulk Hogan's team at the survivor series. He outlasts Hogan in the matchup. It comes down to Bam Bam and Andre. Of course, Hogan comes back in and steals the limelight after the matchup, but Hogan must pose pal. But it's just, I was curious, your take, your memories of Bam Bam during this run. What went wrong? He was my favorite. I loved when the video game came out. I always picked this character because he would do a cartwheel kick in the the old Nintendo game. But uh, yeah, I just didn't know what went wrong. I remember the shoot interview we did like 20 some years ago with RF Video, uh, where he talks about he had a blown out knee going into WrestleMania 4. He blew out his other knee, taking the bump over the top rope to the outside in that match. And he was pretty much done after that. But it sounds like he was disenchanted by that point with the company and it's just so unfortunate because it felt like in the fall of 87, you know, he was the next big thing. You know, it felt like they were going to eventually use him, turn him heel to work Hogan, likely at a, at a WrestleMania or something like that. Yeah, I figured either WrestleMania four or five, he'd end up facing Hogan. That would have made sense. It seemed like they were going that way, but unfortunately it was not meant to be. And I got one more name for you here, Jamie, before I uh, let you leave the show. Ravishing Rick Rude. Now, Rick Rude had been NWA World Tag Team Champion with the Raged Bull Manny Fernandez. The story goes, even according to Manny, that Rude got pissed off with his pay. Uh, Manny was telling him openly what he was making. He showed him his contract or whatever the situation was. Rude was getting substantially less, and he went in and asked for more. And then when he wasn't, when he didn't get what he wanted, he said he was leaving. And Manny said, I'd leave too. And off Rick Rude went with the NWA World Tag Team. I mean, he didn't actually physically keep the World Tag Title, but he left as Tag Team Champion. And they had to like show some old video from like the fall of the year before where Manny and Rude had, had lost to the Rock and Rolls and, and claimed it was a recent match where the Rock and Rolls regained the Tag Titles. But the next thing we know, Rude shows up on WWF TV, and away we go. He's going to feud with Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff out of the gate. Talk about getting over, uh, getting a push right out of the gate, feuding with the one of the, the the guy that was drawing, uh, yeah, he was doing it with Hogan, but drawing the houses from August through December of '86, working Hogan everywhere, all around every loop you could think of. They were selling out everywhere, making big money, even with Orndorff's injured arm. Now Rick Rude comes in, he gets pushed 
immediately stuck with Bobby Heenan. That'll get you over even if you can't talk for yourself, which Rude could. And now he's working against Paul Orndorff. Your memories of Rick Rude in the NWA, did you really think he'd do anything when he got to the WWF? Did it, did it feel like a different Rick Rude when he got there, or were you, were you buying it? Just curious your take on Rick Rude's change from the NWA to the WWF scene. Well, I was fortunate enough to remember him debuting in Georgia as the arm wrestling champion. Okay. Uh, getting a real low card push. And then he moves on to Mid-South, where he's basically in the same position. And you can see his body. He went from a real thin, muscular dude to where now he's starting to get a little bit thicker. Uh, and then I think he goes to Mid-Atlantic after that, and he's starting to put a little bit more beef on. Never that he got he got that big. And then he goes to World Class and does a little bit of, in Florida. And I was never really impressed with him and his uh, wrestling abilities or interviews up to that point. But when they teamed him up with Manny Fernandez, that clicked. I, I, agree I and you. I really thought they they came off as a badass team, mm-hmm. and if they had stuck together long enough, I could have seen them having a great feud with the Road Warriors. That would have been a f- some fun matches, you know. And I'm sure Rude was familiar with Hawk and Animal up there, Minnesota boys and things of that nature. But you're right; it was it was different. They they seemed like they would be polar opposites, Manny Fernandez and Rick Rude. But at the same time, they worked because they were just two badasses, legit badasses put together. They would go in there and just murder the job guys. I mean, within seconds, literally uh, of of the start of the match. Even Paul Jones, after years of doing the comedy routine with Jimmy Valiant. He got he was cap- capable of cutting a pro. I was very shocked. I had forgotten after years of Paul Jones being an absolute goofball that he could cut a, a normal promo, and he was doing so, you know, with Rude and, and Manny out there. But it was it just felt like they weren't getting enough time. They weren't really getting any feuds or anything like that in their run as tag team champions. So it felt like Rude could do more, I thought, than what he was doing there. So I'm very happy that he made the move. But what was really funny, and I and uh, I I love to point these things out is. If you go back and read those observers leading into Rude's debut with the WWF, Dave Meltzer says Rick Rude will be nothing more than a preliminary wrestler here in the WWF. And I had to laugh at that because he says it repeatedly. And then Rude arrives immediately put into a feud with Paul Orndorff. And we all know from there, it's it's actually goes up from there, which people would say, how do you go up from that? But, you know, he becomes Intercontinental Champion, feuds with the Warrior. Uh, has the world title match with the Warrior at SummerSlam 90. So Rude had a fun little run there for three years or so. And I was just curious your take on his leaving the NWA, coming to the WWF, and how the character seemed to evolve from there. Yeah, it's a total 180. I mean, here you have him as the badass in the NWA. He gets to the WWF, and now all of a sudden he's a ladies' man. Yeah, it's uh, he he's simply ravishing, that's for sure. And uh, he he simply ravishes, and like you said, they hook him up with with Orndorff. It can't hurt to work with Paul Orndorff every night for a couple of months. Another step in his evolution, working with Orndorff. And I have to say, it's a it was a pleasant surprise for me to go back and watch this because you look at the names and you go, no duh. But I don't remember this feud really being over. Rick Rude being that over at this point in his WWF career. Paul Orndorff even being as over as he was at this point. But if you go back and actually just watch the stuff that they're doing, Orndorff is one of the loudest pops on the card still, which surprised me in the fall of 87. And Rick Rude is getting a good heel heat from the feud as well. So it really helped Rude out. I didn't realize, I don't think until now, how much 
being paired with Orndorff really helped Root evolve in rapid fashion to that semi-main event almost type role. Yeah, Vincent Patterson knew what they were doing. I, I mean, they created that magic over and over in the 80s. Whether you like their overall product and, you know, aiming toward kids or whatever, but most of the stuff they did work. Not everything was Ken Patera and not work. <laughs> well, well, I'll leave that for, for someone else. I'm not going to kill you with the Kim Patera story here, Jamie. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, we will touch on Kim Patera before this episode of the Wrestling Memory Grenades over. But Jamie, for now, I'm going to let you go. Uh, we've got a regional wrestling coming out soon. Going to talk more Georgia 1981, guys. Stay tuned for that. But for now, Jamie, thank you for being a part of the 100th edition of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. My pleasure. And like I said, I'm honored you asked me to be on this special show. I want to thank you once again, Jamie Ward, for being a part of this show. I knew he'd be a great guest. He has so many vivid memories from 1981. I knew he would have some good stories from 1987 in the WWF. But the show continues on. We're not done yet, guys. Up next on the program, formerly the co-host of the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast, and most recently, the guest co-host over on Regional Wrestling as part of that Mid-South UWF 1986 project, talking about Roman Gomez. He loves talking those 1980s in professional wrestling. Roman, welcome to Grenade, episode 100. Well, thank you. It's always nice to talk wrestling with you and uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, man, it's we always, you know, you're, I've only had you on the regional wrestling show, so it's cool to have you on the other side now, heading into the world of uh, Vince McMahon here in sports entertainment, pal, in 1987 in the WWF. So glad you uh, agreed to be a part of this and really happy to have you here as part of 100, number 100 here on the Grenade. So I don't know really where to begin, so we can kind of go all the way back to, let's start with WrestleMania three, the big spectacle that it was. I asked Jamie Ward the same question I'm going to ask to you. Do you remember where you were when you first saw WrestleMania three? Was it live? Was it on Coliseum video? Tell me your first experience watching WrestleMania three. Oh yeah. I watched it when it happened. Uh, I went awesome. over to my aunt's house and watched it and, uh, yeah, there was all kinds of buzz. You felt at that time that it could have went either way with Hogan and Andre. You know, you weren't sure where the storyline was going. And, uh, yeah, it was something that even non-wrestling fans were talking about, you know, because even people that weren't into wrestling had heard of Hogan. They had heard of Andre. So there was a buzz even from non-wrestling fans about WrestleMania three. So it was quite the spectacle. You know, I talked with Jamie a little bit about Aretha Franklin and all the big everything going on the hoopla at the beginning of the show. I wanted to touch on something very different, you know, something that you don't really hear a lot of people talk about. Let's talk about just for a moment the the uh, the appearance of the the sky over the course of the show because the Silver Dome, while in a dome, you could see outside. It kicks off bright during the day. The Can Am connection in the ring, perfect way to get the show going. And then by intermission, you get that dark blue, that cool looking blue for like the six man tag with the Heart Foundation and the Bulldogs. And by the time the main event came, pitch black out there for Hogan and Andre. How cool was that that the, the sky changed colors repeatedly throughout the night. It kind of worked. I know they didn't do this on, on purpose. It's not like Vince can control the sky. Maybe he can. I'm not really sure. But they, it just kind of worked with the show. It progressed perfectly. I loved it. To have it just here, the way it looked, all of the other stadium shows we'd seen up until now, they just did not come across like this. No. And, uh, you know, of course, the re reported attendance has been debated for years. Was there 70,000? Was there 93 like they claim? Whatever the exact number was, I mean, just when they panned out and showed the whole arena, I mean, you did not see crowds like that for wrestling. So that was definitely a spectacle to be seen. Yeah, and, you know, Gorilla likes to talk about hanging from the rafters and the SRO signs going out early, but 
In this instance, I don't know that there was a single empty seat in that arena from top to bottom. No, and uh, you know, like like I said, it was it was the Hogan Andre. You know, it was a you know decent undercard and everything, and then the celebrity thing was always a big deal with Bob Uecker and everybody. You know, wanting to get involved, and uh, yeah, WrestleMania three was something. I remember going to a store to buy magazines, you know, the wrestling magazines. And even if it was somebody would always make a comment about WrestleMania, you know, like that was the thing to talk about in 1987. It's really what propelled Vince into the next level because yeah, rock and wrestling kicked everything off. People started watching and they know Roddy Piper and they know Hulk Hogan and Mr. T and things from that whole rock and wrestling thing that went down at the end of 84, all throughout 85, even into 86. But it was really WrestleMania three and that picture that Vince could show that really set them apart because he got to, you know, argue with the cable companies. They created Survivor Series. They screwed, you know, Crockett with Starcade and everything because of WrestleMania three. And it really it boosted them to that next level. They just had to show this video to whomever they needed to to sell the product at this point. And it was it's just an amazing sight. So before we move on to just a few other topics here in eighty seven. So we know Hogan and Andre, you've mentioned it a couple times already. Of course, Savage and Steamboat, who can forget? Jamie Ward said his his next match, probably his next favorite match, was Piper and Adonis. He was looking more forward to than maybe even some of the other ones. But I'm going to ask you, Roman, was there anything else on the card? And you can say no. It's totally fine because those are those were the big three selling matches on the show. But was there something else that really that you were at that time really looking forward to that maybe was you know escaping everybody else's radar? No, I, I can't say anything, but, you know, something that's not talked about. I thought the opening match was pretty good. You know, that's not right. something a lot of people talk about. It's not something I was that was going to make me order the pay-per-view, per se. But, you know, looking back, I thought that was a good opening match with Orton and Morocco. I you think know? they chose and, uh, the perfect match to, to open the show. It was, uh, and people forget about it. I mean, everybody knows that opened WrestleMania three. Common wrestling fan of that time period knows the opening match of WrestleMania three, but with 12 matches on the card, I feel like it gets overlooked a lot. And you're right. I think there was a lot of movement there by Martell and Zink. They really tried to keep things going. And really, compared to the way Orton and Morocco would work at the time a lot, they really came to work that night. Right. And, uh, you know, just other things, uh, Hercules and Billy Jack Haynes, you know, okay. this wasn't too, too long after the expose on 2020 came out mm-hmm. about, you know, how wrestling worked and, you know, the blade job. Right. You know, I remember like looking for it and I'm like, there it is. There it is. He just cut himself. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a memory I have too. Just seeing the blade job and, and knowing to look for it. Oh man. That was, that was a good shot though. Hercules laying in those chain shots as a kid. I wasn't looking for the blades. So I just, it was a pretty awesome sight to see, you know, Hercules nailing Haynes with the chain repeatedly there. And I was even a giant fan of the dog leaving, even though he lost the match, he left in that Cape and crown. And I didn't realize at the time it took many years to realize that, that was his last match. They let him go out, stealing Harley Race's garb, leaving with the King's music playing up on the throne, beware of dog. And then he was gone, you know, until they rehired him a couple months later, two, three months later. Uh, but dog, dog, that was technically supposed to be his final match, final night in the company because he was no showing a lot due to quote unquote demons at the time, which was unfortunate. But I always loved that sight, seeing dog leave out there with Harley Race's cape and cross. So there was a lot of fun things. I, I've said it so many times when I review the show. The matches that weren't meant to be good or weren't very good, they gave them something at the end to re- you could remember the match by. The Rougeos and the Dream Team, not much on paper, but at the same time, Dino Bravo joins Greg Valentine. Brutus Beefcake left behind. They did something special there. Coco and Butch Reed, not very, probably the least you know, of the 12 matches, the least memorable match on the entire card. But then Tito Santana comes out, rips, slicks, clothes up. So 
they gave every match something, something the fans to remember the match by. Yeah, and, and something else I remember for me I thought was unique is that with Steamboat, you know, you always hear, and rightfully so, what a great worker he was, what a great technician, whatever. Mm-hmm. That was one of the few promos from Steamboat that I remember. All these years later, was he talked about this dragon is breathing fire, and I will scorch your back. I will walk away with the Intercontinental Championship and see new horizons. Right. And the that's intensity that he said that, yeah, that I remember that. You know, that was in 1987. I remember because Steamboat was not known as a great promo guy, but I remember that so. promo. <laughs> Thirty-six years later, I just remember like Steamboat. Pardon the pun is literally fired up. You know, well, like you yeah, know, he was get getting him, Ricky. Well, in hindsight, he was getting that IC belt in front of quote unquote ninety-three thousand fans. So he better be fired up for that. If you can't get fired up for that, <laughs> then I don't. I don't. You're in the wrong business. So I mean, yeah, it was obviously. What a hell of a match. I don't know that it was ever topped in, right. in the in the WWF. I don't know that it was ever topped. Some people could argue, you know, I loved Hogan and Warrior or Hogan and or excuse me, Warrior and Savage at WrestleMania seven for the story. I love the wrestling of Mr. Perfect and Bret Hart at SummerSlam ninety one. The latter match at ninety four holds a very special place in my heart because Richfield Coliseum, I got to see it live when they were trying the match out. So when I was watching it at WrestleMania ten, I was going, Oh my god, they did that exact spot, you know, when I two months ago or whatever at the Richfield Coliseum. So it was kind of funny. I actually got to see that ladder match live before it, you know, aired on pay-per-view technically. So, cause they were, you know, getting it all together and things. So there's a, just a handful of matches you can really over the next decade that you can say was in that level. And we had never seen a match of that level in the WWF up until that point. You know, and, and something else, just thinking about it, Ray, that, makes me kind of appreciate the Steamboat Savage match more is the way as meticulous a Savage was. Right. I couldn't under imagine the pressure Steamboat was under. Right. When you hear Steamboat <laughs> in interviews say that there was like 178 moves in the match or whatever, and right. Savage was like, what's move number 36? Oh, I fly over the top rope, and then I do it. I couldn't imagine trying to remember 178 things. So that might have actually been harder than having a match off the cuff, you know, that wasn't quote-unquote scripted. Yeah, that, the pressure was certainly there in an era where you're not trained to memorize a match move for move, and Nothing against it. It came out perfect, you know, flawless in my eyes, but not just to memorize the match. That's one thing, you know, back and forth. We're doing this, we're doing that, but to try to memorize everything by number, that's makes it all the more complicated rather than just running through the matchup. So insane to think, you know, Macho Man was scripting things all the way back then. Everybody gets heat for it now. Nothing wrong with it. As long as it, you know, works out in the end of the day and, and both guys, let's face it, Roman, if things had went awry, both guys were professional enough. They would have covered it up. They would have went to something else. They would have got back to where they needed to. So it's okay to have a script in place, I suppose, when you're really trying to tell a masterclass, you know, matchup, as long as you're professional enough to know how to fix something if it goes, you know, like I said, awry. Right. And the, and the awesome thing with those two legendary performers was we didn't know it was scripted, you know, <laughs> no, back absolutely, then. No. Uh, you know, it was now like, damn, every move was planned out from from the opening lockup to the end. Like, yeah. it just shows how good they were. And like, like you alluded to, a great point on your part. If something did go wrong, they would they would cover it up and, and not let us know that something went wrong. They were right. that good. Now matches are planned bell to bell, and you you know they are because you're watching a guy stand there for 30 seconds and wait for the next spot. 
that was not the case there. They were point on, boom, boom, boom. And it was it was just a great match from beginning to end. Absolutely. But we won't spend the entire time talking about WrestleMania 3, but I really had fun there discussing that with you. I wanted to talk to you about, were you doing the dirt sheets by 87, or did that not come into your world yet at that point? No, that, w- that was not in my world. You know, okay. the earliest I started getting any kind of inside info was in the early 90s on a radio show that Mike Tenay hosted locally. Well, it okay. went nationwide, but, you know, it was based here. But, yeah, no yeah. dirt sheets to my knowledge at that at that time. Okay, so this probably went unnoticed by you at the time, but I was just going to pick your brain anyway because I didn't mention this to anyone else on the show, so I figured I'd run it by you. Dynamite Kid, right? He suffers a very, very bad back injury in December of 86, chair shot. I believe from Don Morocco or Bob Orton there in a tag match. That match actually exists on handheld footage out there, by the way, guys. You might want to go try to find it. But Dynamite Kid suffers a serious back injury to the point where he's he's immobile. He can't move, and it's painfully obvious. And I never noticed this until I went back and dissected 87 like I have. Watched every piece of TV, every house show that was televised, things of that nature. Now, they kept him out of the ring, but they forced him back to the ring too early. He would come out to ringside, accompany people. He was down on his knees with his, you know, uh, forearms resting, you know, his chin on the uh, apron watching matches because he couldn't even stand for lengthy periods of time following the injury. And they were still having him come out to ringside and things. And then to see him the first couple times he gets back in the ring right around WrestleMania time, he, he had no business in a ring. The guy couldn't deliver a move. You know, he tried one snap suplex off to the side, but he couldn't do anything. And they waited until I believe it was the end of August. Eight months later, they decide, okay, we're going to send you home for a couple months and let you try to rehab. It was just insane. I didn't know if that was something that was talked about back then or you knew about it while it was going on because going back and watching it now, Dynamite Kid had no business in the ring for the first, really most of 1987. He couldn't really do anything at all. He finally comes back here in the month of October and he's doing some, some dynamite things again. Davy Boy's picking him up in the air and launching him for a, diving headbutt or something along those lines. So he's doing more in October than he's done all year, but there was a long period there when he was doing next to nothing. And I'm not crapping on him for it. He had no business in the ring to begin with. He was just trying, I guess, trying to keep his job, so to speak. But I didn't know if that was something you'd noticed back then, or if it was even in the after mags at the time or anything like that. No, I, I was not privy to that information. You know, when they lost the titles, I remember, Davy Boy carrying Dynamite to the ring on his back when they lost the titles to the Hart Foundation. And I thought it was just storytelling, you know, like, oh, they're really working over the hurt back angle, you know, or hurt back injury. But yeah, to look back all these years later, and, you know, that was such a different time then, you know, they weren't under guaranteed deals, a lot of these guys. And it's like, if you didn't work, you didn't get paid. So, you know, there was no, hey, let me sit out for a year and I'll I'll still have my Lloyds of London insurance policy or, right. you know, any of that. Hey, you had to get in the ring. So, you know, they, they put it all on the line. Yeah, it was just painful, really. I mean, cringeworthy to watch what they had him doing at, at one point when he clearly had no business anywhere at ringside, even when he wasn't wrestling. Why, why are you forcing this guy? Or I'm not necessarily saying they forced him, but they didn't stop him either from coming out and just even standing there was clearly too painful to the point where, you know, they're leading into WrestleMania three. There's the six man Bulldogs are teaming with Tito. So they're accompanying Tito to ringside for a match on TV. And Davey boy literally gets down on his knees with dynamite to make it look like not as obvious because they're both doing the the same thing, but it's clear that dynamite, you know, he's at one point he's even using the uh, apron to even prop himself up to even stand. So just, it was hard to go back and see when you know what you're looking for. 
Yeah, the the toll that takes that it takes on these wrestlers, you know, like just even seeing Nick Bockwinkel years ago at Cauliflower Alley Club. This is the guy that wrestled half the year, you know. He right. wrestled about 180 dates a year. He walked with a limp. You know, his back was he was punched over because of his back and I mean the toll that these guys take and then of course everybody knows dynamite with the high flying and the jumping out of the ring and all the crazy stuff he did in japan and like it's amazed he didn't end up paralyzed or hurt sooner you know with right. the high devil high high risk daredevil type tactics he did yeah it's, it, it really is because he was so good in the wwf but people don't realize how great he was prior to then he had really had to slow down a lot his style by this point in the company, but really he was more than passable as a top talent still, you know, even when he was doing half of what he used to be able to do. That's just how good he was in his prime anyway. But while we're on the topic of dynamite and the bulldogs and the injury, we talk about the title change. They had to switch the belts off of the bulldogs and they give them to the heart foundation. Wise decision, I think, but the story goes, I don't know if you ever heard this one. Originally Vince wanted to put it back on Sheik and Volkov and dynamite was the one that said, Oh no, no, I'm I'll come out and drop the belts, but the only team we're dropping the belts to is the Hart Foundation. Obviously, both teams from the Calgary, they both work the Calgary area. They have all the ties to the Hart family and things like that. And the Bulldogs said the only team we're going to drop the belts to is the Hart Foundation. And that's kind of how the Hart's got the belts here. Yeah, that that's news to me. And uh, I wonder, you know, is, if there was any residual effects afterwards, like if Sheik and Volkov found out it, about that or you know if they had any heat with the bulldogs because of that you know that would be interesting to to hear any backstory on that well i think nikolai <laughs> should have just been happy he had a job for all those years i hear he's a really yeah. nice guy but to to have uh, been with the company as long as he was i'd say i'd say he, he should just be happy he was there especially by that point in his career but i, I get what you're saying yeah. i get what you're saying well luckily sheik's gone in a couple months here he's gonna get well, we'll parlay that into our next <laughs> store topic here. What about, did you see that in any of the news or anything at the time? Sheik and uh, Duggan getting pulled over and arrested together in the middle of their feud. Obviously, subsequently, both guys get fired for the reason, for the, uh, for getting busted together, the two guys feuding. Not for the drugs that they were carrying, but rather because they were a baby face and a heel feuding against one another and they're caught. They're pulled over and caught. And it actually leads to the very first drug test in the history of the WWF as well. Yeah, I remember reading about that in one of the wrestling magazines back in the day, believe it or not. And, you know, I, you, you knew wrestling was a work and whatnot, but I was just like, boy, that doesn't look good that the we call them good guys and bad guys. The magazines always call them babyface or rule breakers and, you know, whatever. But it was just like, yeah, that doesn't, you know, wasn't just the drugs was bad enough, but just from the wrestling aspect, like, you have a good guy and a bad guy in the same the, not just a good and bad. These two are supposed to hate each other. Like that right. doesn't look good for business. Yeah, that was my first thought. Like this really does not look good for business of the two guys that hate each other in the same car. And they were pushing Duggan hard as kind of like the next guy in line under Hogan. Really, when he first came in, and he was getting over. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying he wasn't over. Duggan was always over. You know, well beyond you know his prime with the fans. He was he was getting his cheers and his chants and things. But the overness that he was before. He's gone here for a few months versus when he comes back. It's just a different level, a little bit, little bit less. I mean, when he first came, the crowd really bought into him. Hook, line, and sinker, they, they ate it up, the whole hacksaw Duggan gimmick. And then him and Sheik, they, they get the uh, axe there by the end of May, I think it was. Now, Duggan, he'll be back by, like, September. But unfortunately, the damage was done to a degree, I think. Sheik, he, he comes back a couple of times just here and there. But it is what it is, the Iron Sheik, and that's the way it is. Can you imagine, Ray, 
if I can just inter- interject something real quick, sure. can you imagine that Doug- Duggan had talked about it in an interview that people were driving by on the interstate or whatever, and like, hey, that's that Duggan and Sheik. Like, can you imagine what Duggan must have been, you know, not only knowing that he'd have to deal with the repercussions from his dad, who was a police chief in the, you know, Glen Falls area, but just from the fans, you know, like fans are seeing this, driving by, seeing Duggan and Sheik together. Like, I couldn't imagine what their reaction must have been. And anybody, if anybody knew better, it was Duggan. I mean, he had just come from the Bill Watts territory after many years there. To uh, break kayfabe to that level, could you imagine what Bill Watts was? And then, you, you know, put put it in more context, I remember now covering this back when it happened, back in May, like the following week or something like that was Jim Duggan Day in Glens Falls, New York. They were coming to town. His father was the chief of police, uh, Jim Duggan Sr. Uh, they, they were celebrating some big giant Jim Duggan Day. And then this happens, and they actually have to yank the, you know, the whole thing out. And that, that's unfortunate, too. <laughs> you know, and, and it sucks, too, because... I, I've met him and everything I've heard is that Duggan is just an awesome guy, you know, and but it's, it's, that, that's definitely a black mark on his, uh, career legacy, you know, that, that whole incident, but you know, right. I, he's such a good guy from what, by all accounts. And oh, the, absolutely. the one time I've met him, he, he was super cool guy. Right. Well, we got one more topic I want to touch on. I skipped it with everybody else. So you, you get the uh, luck of uh, talking this one over with me just real quick and we'll roll on uh, with the program. But, Ken Patera, the Ken Patera story. It looked good on paper, I thought, anyway. Here's a guy's coming back. He paid his dues. He's coming to uh, right all his wrongs and this, that, and the other. And gets back in the ring, and it just never really works. He gets injured uh, by the end of the summer. Wrestling Tom Stone, they blame it on the Heenan family, uh, injures his arm. He's out until just about, just about Survivor Series time. He's brought back, and they kind of give up on the Heenan family feud. Heenan worked hard to get this over in the promos on primetime every week, referring to Patera as a number, number 59919, get convict, ex-con, <laughs> Ken Patera. But, uh, you know, and then when he comes back, he's stuck in a team with Billy Jack Haynes briefly to feud with Demolition. Of course, Haynes ain't going to last much longer by that point. So uh, w- what did you think of the time? I mean, I knew you had already seen you some Ken Patera and, you know, prior to his uh, prison stay and whatnot. And had we got the Ken Patera of old, that would have been awesome. I don't know if it worked as a babyface. Patera, definitely a natural heel, but what did, what did you think of the 87 run of Ken Patera? I, to be honest, I was never really a Ken Patera guy. You know, okay. I, I know he had credentials, but uh, yeah, from, from what he said and from what I've heard, they basically had to turn him babyface because people in the fa- in the stands were yelling jailbird. You know, they had read the reports about what happened with him and Saito at the McDonald's and, you know, he was just kind of getting harassed and, uh, so I, from what I hear, it was kind of like necessity. Well, like well, we got to turn him babyface because it doesn't look good on TV if you know you have somebody coming out there and you hear jailbird chants or whatever. So they they turned him and tried to make him the the inspirational guy. You know, yeah. like I'm turning my life around. And I, you know, I, I just was never a Ken Patera guy. That's just me. Yeah, I mean, I was I liked the Patera heel uh, gimmick. I don't know that I was in love with it like I was some of the other heel characters over time, like a Mister Perfect or uh, Rick Martel's heel run as as the model or Shawn Michaels later on after he throws Janetti through the window. There were a lot of those cool heels that I love, Rick Rude, uh, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But Patera, I always enjoyed. I, I I was fine with him being there. I don't know that I was ever like in love with that heel character like I was some of those other guys I just mentioned. But I certainly bought into it. But when he came back, something was missing. I don't know if it was the hair dye job being gone. 
He wasn't as defined as he used to be. Still strong like Bull, you know. I watch him throw those uh, job guys across the ring. But at the same time, he just wasn't the same. He comes back. He's blown up after one move. He's very, well, you would expect to be rusty, but he just stayed rusty. Winds up injuring his arm and just never the same. And just never really seemed to really be into it, really. I mean, again, I just never bought Patera as the baby face anyway. No, I I didn't mind him as Sheik Ken Patera in the AWA Patera, when he got sold. Sheik Blackwell. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't. Yeah, I did not. That was actually an okay. I didn't mind him in that incarnation, but just in general, you know, I was never a Ken Patera guy. You know, and you would read in the magazines about his greatness, and you'd hear that he was an Intercontinental Champion and Missouri Champion at the exact same time, which was unheard of. But I don't know. It was just something about his work rate. There was something that just he just didn't do it for me. I mean, I could see that. I could see a lot, a lot of people weren't gigantic fans of Patera. I didn't mind him. I bought him in that spot. Unfortunately, when he came back, I liked the story up front. Maybe not the, the you know, trying to do right, the hokey, over-the-top, babyface type part of the story. But I liked the feud with Bobby Heenan because Heenan sold it so well. But Patera's end, he was just like reciting the same sentence. So it was like you asked him what his favorite color was, and he was just reciting the sentence he had memorized. And it had nothing to do with the color. So it was just terrible promos because he wasn't even answering the questions that he was being asked during his interviews and things. So it just just never worked for me. But I I had to get it in. I had to ask somebody the question. You got selected. You drew the short straw there to talk about Ken Patera here. Yeah, I just wanted to add one thing, Ray, just thinking about it when you mentioned Heenan. To me, he was without a doubt the unsung hero like of WrestleMania three because without Heenan being there in Andre's corner – to cut the promos and right. to put a little more fuel on the fire. I don't Hogan and Andre would have been a big deal, but Heenan was the perfect catalyst and that helped to get Andre over even more. I just wanted to add that, like how valuable Heenan was to the Hogan Andre storyline. Oh, and I think Vince knew that because the story always goes that I don't remember the, the numbers are out there. Whatever Heenan got paid for WrestleMania three, he took that payday and bought a house, you know, the house that his family would wind up living in, whatever, for the years to come and things with that. He took that paycheck and just went and bought a house flat out with it. Whatever he got paid, it was six figures. It wasn't like something crazy, but it was still six figures to manage Andre, you know, come out for a, you know, a match or two earlier on the show. Just uh, very deserved. If anybody ever deserved it, it wasn't just what Heenan did in the little vignettes with the Piper's Pits and things, but every week working overtime on those prime times, you know, two hours every week if you just walk, go back and watch those prime times he was more on money during that period leading into wrestlemania than i'd ever heard him but so focused on getting that over oh heenan was just incredible there will never be another heenan i i, I don't think at least not in my lifetime a guy that could do it all the way he did on the mic and the ring and the manager but i mean he was just phenomenal no, you're not going to get an argument with me. <laughs> it's probably my number one favorite entertainer of all time. Can't call him my favorite wrestler, but my favorite entertainer in the entire world of professional wrestling, Bobby Heenan, probably number one at the top of everyone for sure. But uh, Roman, I got to keep this show rolling, man. I don't want to cut you off. I have a lot of great conversation here about 1987. We got a show coming up. Going to talk Crockett Cup on the Regional Wrestling Podcast as well here coming up this week. So looking forward to that and talking to you again. Thank you so much, Roman Gomez for being a part of this very special 100th edition. It was my pleasure, and I'm honored that you considered me to be part of this anniversary, this 100th show. Thank you so much, Ray. We appreciate you, Roman. All right. Got to thank Roman once again. So passionate 
about the good old days of pro wrestling or sports entertainment, pal. Fun conversation there, but the show, it just keeps going, guys. Not done yet. One more special guest this week, a very special guest, and the fact that you've never heard him on another wrestling podcast or any podcast for that matter, I don't think, but you have heard me mention his name and speak about him oftentimes here on the show as I recollect old stories and memories from my years gone by, my wrestling memory grenade, if you will. Can't tell you how great it was to grow up with a brother who had similar passion to me. I don't know that anybody can match my passion for wrestling, but he certainly gave it a good go. And when I say wrestling engulfed our lives as kids, well, I'm sure we're going to get into some stories here to really explain to you guys just how much we were in to the world of professional wrestling growing up. There's no format for this interview, guys. I truly and honestly have no idea where we're going to go. Just going to have a little fun here. Going to bring my brother onto the show in just a minute. But also a reminder, guys, at the end of this interview, I will be announcing where the Grenade Project will head next after we conclude 1987 in the WWF. We got maybe six, seven more shows here of 87 WWF. I would I would guesstimate we're going to cover the months of November and December, Saturday night's main event, and of course, the Survivor Series pay-per-view. But once that's all done, where are we going next? Stay tuned and find out on the other side of this interview. And right now, I'd like to bring him onto the show. I'm talking about my brother, Jesse, but I'm going to do this old school. I'm going to kick it back to 1994 and introduce him as he used to be introduced on Radio WWF when he would call in. We'd both call in every week. Let us go to Jay to Cleveland and WHK. Jay, are you on the line? I am here. I am here. Nobody's going to get that besides two people on this earth, me and you. This is indeed my brother, yeah. Jesse. And way back in well, the day. I, thought, I wanted to keep it authentic, brother. <laughs> yeah, we, well, you're making your return to the airwaves after nearly 30 years away from the professional wrestling uh, radio podcasting world. Uh, former weekly yeah. call-in to Radio WWF was uh, both of us, really. And uh, yeah, that was uh, one week. I gave you crap for that shit for that for, for months. Uh, the way <laughs> Johnny Polo said, or maybe it was Stan Lane, Jesse, are you, or Jay, are you there? And I am here, and I gave you shit until that infamous day that I went on there and asked President Jack Tunney a question, and he gave me a smart-ass answer. And Johnny Polo uttered the famous two words. Yeah, dummy. Dummy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, dummy. And you recorded that episode. Are those the two? <laughs> those are the two. You recorded that and uh, played it back repeatedly. Uh, rewind. People don't know the struggle of the old cassette tapes, but you would rewind it and play it repeatedly in our uh, phone calls. Wow, man. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't prepared for that one. I forgot about the part where I recorded it and played it over and over again for you. Yeah, typically things don't get on my nerves when I know people are trying to get on my nerves, but I, I mean, it got to the point in that phone conversation where I was just about had it. But any, anywho, welcome uh, to the 100th edition of the Wrestling Memory Grenade, Jesse. In fact, it took you it took 100 episodes, but I finally got you on the show. Yeah, well, you know what, man? I just want to start off by saying thanks for having me. It's both an honor and a pleasure. I wouldn't uh, miss it for the world. But yeah, man, uh, just, just to stay true to the whole radio WWF, uh, just so everyone knows, if you can picture this in your, uh, wherever you're listening, I am uh, wearing an Out Think the Think t-shirt. Oh, yes. And yes, it has lasted 30 years, nearly uh, probably over a thousand uh, washes. So I will say this, man, uh, the, the quality of these T-shirts are pretty exemplary. <laughs> I'd say so. I, I stopped wearing mine back in 1994, but uh, <laughs> that was more for fear of 
<laughs> I, I, I didn't want to lose 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 the quality of the shirt, but clearly it stands to the test of time. I don't know that I would fit into my Outthink the Fink t-shirt anymore at this point, but yeah, man, it was great times calling into Outthink the Fink winning t-shirt after t-shirt. The only thing that pissed me off was that last episode. Uh, I won a shirt. They never sent it to me. And then you turn around and get an extra shirt in the mail for absolutely no reason. So I kind of wonder, like, did they see two names, same last name, same city, and they just sent it to the wrong brother? I, I don't really know. But it, it was funny because I got so pissed off. I'm like, man, you got another one for nothing? And they never even sent me mine. But. Yeah, I know. You know, being, I don't know how old I was, 10, 12 years old, whatever, a good brother probably would have just went ahead and given you that shirt since you earned it. But <laughs> I think you were 12, you know, not 10. But yeah, yeah, you were you got a few shirts out of that. I think we both did. So I did, and they always sent me like a size or two too big, which is probably why I still fit in mine because <laughs> they were a boat on me back in the day. Yeah, well, I would say so based on uh, your size back in the day. Nice slender young man. But uh, it was funny because uh, some weeks we would you know hit the jackpot, ask a question, the Fink would fail, we would win. I don't know that Fink ever actually answered our questions correctly. But for those who don't know, and he did this online and everything after that, Fink had a show on Radio WWF. It's where it started. It was called Outthink the Fink. And the Fink was you know the history buff of professional wrestling. And you would get to call in and try to stump the Fink. If you could stump him and he couldn't answer your question correctly, you want a shirt. When when I first got Radio WWF, it was actually a WrestleMania 10 t-shirt that you would win early in 94. But once they ran out of those, they pivoted to these uh, very rare, only printed in 1994. Uh, I'll think the big t-shirts, pretty cool stuff. I wonder if they always stuck with the, that mint green. I was going to say, oh, yeah, that? I would have to think. Well, I would think. Based on the color, I was going to get to the color next. <laughs> I would have to think that was the oh, okay. cheapest color possible. Like, there, there's all these shirts. The, the black shirts clearly cost more. The white shirts, whatever. And then there was that, you call it mint green. I called it puke green. I don't really know what color green it really was. But <laughs> it was like the awful, yeah, most gaudy color of green there is. An, I posted this on social media quite a while back, a picture of the shirt. But the most gaudiest color of green uh, known to man. The last color you would pick for anything. I've never even seen another shirt in that color since that time. So it's, uh, yeah, it's well, uh, fucking hilarious. To be honest, neither have I. So that's a fair point. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking it was like the cheapest. Well, you can get this for 30 cents. Deal. Deal, pal. And uh, that's yeah, what they pr- that's printed exactly the right. on. Which one can I mass produce for the least amount of money for our knowing, listeners? Knowing Fink, he probably did it himself, to be honest with you. Yeah, maybe. Got to get myself out there. Miss the Fink. Great, one of the greatest uh, ring announcers of all time, for sure. Yeah, that definitely brought back some memories introducing me like that uh, back in my twelve-year-old days. You know, not since anyway. The... Uh, Go on. No, I was just going to say, like you know, moving on to uh, you know current events. I don't know how many people knew, but uh, let's all wish Ray a, a happy birthday. I think uh. he just celebrated a birthday not too long ago, right? Maybe yeah, within I'm... the last uh, couple of days. I'm ancient, moving into my mid forties here. Yeah, I, I, I hey, share for uh, better or worse. I share my birthday with one Vincent Kennedy McMahon of all people. So I guess I was born to be a a wrestling fan. I guess. Yeah, you remind me about that all the time, and I always forget. But there yeah, you go, pal. that is right. There you go, pal. That's right. Do you guys text each other? Oh, happy birthday, Vince! I don't want to. Happy birthday, I, pal! I don't want to admit to anything, any conversations I've ever had with <laughs> Mister McMahon. Not not the way he's going these days, but no, 
you know, I'm doing something I've never done in 100 episodes of The Grenade right now, and I didn't do it until now. This is my first, my, not my first interview on the show, but the uh, first interview on this show that I am actually doing so is I have opened a beer, everyone, and I've only done that in the past on the old Tom Robinson shows, TR Shocks, Shocks the World. Sometimes you got to drink when you're talking to Tom. And uh, also Ooh. sometimes on Patreon, a little more laid back atmosphere when I've done some watch alongs in the past, have a couple beers while we're enjoying a show. But never done that here on The Grenade, and I'm doing that right now. So enjoying myself a day late on my birthday, but it's okay. Well, cheers to you, man. So let's go back to Radio WWF real quick. So I wanted to touch on a couple things about that because a lot of people didn't experience it. Even people that were huge wrestling fans at the time, there was no internet. You couldn't go online and try to find the audio. So unless you had that radio station, and as a fan, you just assume every radio station and every city in the world must carry this, you know, <laughs> wrestling show. But that was not the case whatsoever. Very few, select few radio stations actually picked up Radio WWF, which probably explains how we got in every single week on the call-in part, part yeah. of the show. But uh, I just wanted to talk we about a few things. the lucky one. Yeah, so people who don't did, never got to hear the show or heard very little of it don't understand. There was always a segment, I'll think the Fink every week, but there was one week, I don't know if you remember this, where the Fink wasn't in the studio. And so he was replaced by Lord Alfred Hayes. And uh, this is where I turned heel on Alfred Hayes for a couple years. After. Like, I held a grudge with Hayes in the back of my mind for a couple years after this one. I call in. I got my question planned. It's a silly question. Who was the second man eliminated in the 1989 Royal Rumble. Do you remember that one, Jess? I do. I could give you the answer. Give me the answer. <laughs> Are you going to give it to me straight or give me the Alfred Hayes way? Uh, yeah, I'll give you the Lord Alfred Hayes version. Uh, <laughs> the second man eliminated. Oh, man. That was exactly what he said. And they paused for a second and they let it fly. I said, who was the second man eliminated in the 1989 Royal Rumble? The answer. Do you know the real answer? Uh, I'm, I know you, I'm, sure you, I'm sure you used to, though. It was, uh, I, I only oh, remember, yeah. I only remember it for this reason. It was Smash. Smash of Demolition was the second guy oh, to go out. Boo. And, well, yeah, Andre, I was going to get one of the Demolition. But, um, and uh, I said, so who was the second man? And Alfred Hayes' response was, ah, uh, the second man. And they gave it to him. Yeah, Alfred's right. It was the second <laughs> man. And they hung up on me oh, mid-sentence. Oh, oh, man, I wanted to kill that friggin' <laughs> Englishman for quite a while after that. But, uh, yeah. And then they sent me a T-shirt for that. Yeah, they probably did send you. That's probably what you <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you what: the first time uh, you ever called the show, you called in during a radio WW or a Outthink segment, and um, you asked my question. I said, "Man, if I ever," because I was called in and I always got in some other time on the show, so I'd never gotten to the Fink at that point. You called in one week, and it was definitely you. And the question was nonsense. I timed the, the Warrior Hercules match from WrestleMania 4, and it was however many minutes and seconds. And I told you, I said, if I ever get through, this is what I'm going to ask. This is the answer. You call in and give them my question. And you won your first shirt on my dime. Oh, talk about being pissed off at you. I was like, he stole my question. But yeah, good times. <laughs> oh, man. I do remember uh, asking some questions about like who drew number 15 in the 1990 Royal Rumble or who was the 15th man eliminated. <laughs> I can't believe more people didn't ask questions like that. I mean, some people would call and say, you know, who beat, you know, Macho Man for the heavyweight title in WrestleMania 5. It's like, who doesn't know that one, man? <laughs> Especially <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was a good one that you came up with. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, there was a lot of uh, good things about the show. Obviously, by the time we 
we got it here in the Cleveland area. Jim Ross had just left. So Johnny Polo's was essentially hosting the show. And he said in past shoot interviews that he never had any interest uh, in, in making a, having a real show like Jr. did. He, he said, he told himself the minute he took over that it was going to be nonstop comedy. Like he wasn't going to take anything seriously. And you could say he lived by that. Now they changed the intro to introduce Vince McMahon with some weird sexual noise at the end. And now your host, Vince McMahon. <laughs> ah, and then every week you're like, Vince isn't here this week. I think he was there like twice in six months. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not doing that shit, pal. And, uh, <laughs> But Johnny Polo, would, and he, he had to have walked into every one of those episodes high because he was just rolling every week. It was two hours of hilarity. No, oh, he was gold, man. Definitely my favorite on that show. Yeah, they could have done so much more with him. I know, I know he's his own worst enemy backstage and got him booted from the company, but he could have done so much. They had him in production and all kinds of things by the time he left there. It's unfortunate, but Stan Lane is sidekick. Stan was a little more laid back, but you could tell certain weeks Stan probably, Stan probably took a couple hits of something too because – he was rolling a few few weeks as well, Stan Lane. Uh, but I just I miss yeah. the good old times, you know. Absolutely. Calling to listen to that. I remember I got a brand new for my birthday that August '94, a brand new radio to record the show because you know I had an old tape recorder prior to that. It wasn't even a radio. Just or, well, it was I guess because I got the the show on it. But it was a little shit radio, and then I got like a real nice one. And then like a week later, they announced, "Oh, this is the last episode." I was like, "You got to be shitting me! I don't even want this radio." Would I pick something else? Yeah. Well, do you want to do you want to tell the listeners, or do you want me to? But tell them what the most impressive thing was about you and I being able to actually get in uh, on the show anyway, especially when I was over, you know, at our grandparents' house. Oh, you mean the phone? I'm, I'm assuming the phone. Yes, okay, you guys, man, that was a struggle. <laughs> okay, so you're not kidding. My finger would literally, literally have a red ring around it, a sore. It would take days for it to heal every week just to do it again every Saturday. That pain, I will never forget that pain in my right index finger. And what you're referring to is, is that they had a phone that we used that was still a rotary phone, guys, rotary dial phone. I'm sure uh, most of you know what it is. Maybe, it right maybe, they've, maybe they've heard of it. They've never actually experienced it. But you take your finger and you stick it in a hole and you you know you start dialing. An 800 number, 1-800-WWF, you know, whatever, 8686, I think it was. But And you do that over and over. And the numbers, the further the number was away, those eights were killer. You know, the Ws were killer because you had to rotate it even further. <laughs> Wait for it to cycle yeah, back. And no, and no redial. No, no redial no re button, guys. No button at all. <laughs> I mean, and you just sit there and click it. And you get the busy signal. You click it and you start all over again. I remember one time we went over, I went over our cousin Crystal's house and she had, you know, push button. Obviously they were up to times in the nineties and I pressed yeah. like redial twice and I got in. I'm like, are you like, are you fucking shitting me? Like I sit at home <laughs> and I'm lucky if I, you know, I, I've, you know, dialed that yeah. number 70 times and I get in and I go over there and I press a button three times and there I am. I'm, I'm on the air, but yeah, the rotary phone guys, imagine that two hours of just spinning your hand. Talk about being wrestling fans. That's uh absolutely <laughs> die hard for sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, go back to Alfred real quick before we move on to some other topics here. He was, uh, you know, they were doing nothing with him. Needless to say by 94, but he was always on the radio WWF show every uh, week, essentially for about a five minute segment of comedy. He would just call in and whatever. And I remember there was a couple of episodes I remember specifically, and they really dropped, missed the boat 
on uh, doing something more with Alfred and some kind of comedy bit because Vince loved comedy anyway, pal, on TV because the one week they asked Alfred, where are you? Because was, that was the gimmick. Where Every week he was somewhere ridiculous. And one week he was out on mm-hmm. a boat in the middle of the night whale watching. And he was going to call the whales like a, a <laughs> sex call or something. And they go, how do you call the whales, Alfred? And he goes, and, and I, we've listened to these things so many times. I haven't heard these shows in almost 30 years. But when I did listen to them, I listened to them like 400 times. So they're embedded in my mind. And how, how did the whales sound, Alfred? Or how do you call the whales? Like, oh, 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 this is Alfred Hayes doing this nonsense, right? So the next, I remember that. So the next week, he's potato watching. They go, you're a potato? What is that? Oh, I'm in a field of potatoes, you know. Oh, oh how, do you, how do you call a potato, Alfred? Just like that. No, no plan. He goes, oh, oh, yeah, that's a mating call for potatoes. And, and uh, oh, well, well, let's hear it, Alfred. And, and I swear it goes like this. And I was, I died, I died laughing. I fell over laughing, um, tears in my eyes, nonsense. The, you know, I just can't picture Alfred Hayes doing this nonsense, but it was good times, good stuff, you know, and they had all these other guys call in. I, I don't know, just, uh, you're the only one I can really share it with. Cause you kind of, I mean, you might not remember every little segment, but you remember plenty of them. And I mean, it's somebody I can speak to who lived it as well. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, this is awesome. Taking me uh, down a trip to uh, down memory lane. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> some of the best times I had growing up was listening to radio WWE with you or WWF. I, I can say that on your show, right? Oh yeah. You can call it whatever you or want. Do we, or do we, <laughs> do we need to get the F out? I don't no, know. We, no, I leave it in all the time. In fact, that's all I cover here. Okay. Yeah. It's my I memories. It's, it's, it's our memories. So it was the WWF. Yeah, it's it's it was good times. They always had random, you know, wrestlers calling, or they would call. I remember one time they called Rene Goulet as a rib. They didn't say it, but you know, you put two and two together when you get older. He was over on the European tour, so it was like five hours later where you know they're calling him at ten. So it's like middle of the night. They call him, and when he calls in, he can't ask for Rene Goulet because he's under his real name, Robert Bedard, and that's how I found out his real name. But as quick as Johnny Polo was, he explains to us that. Rene Goulet is so over that he's actually using a fake name of Robert Bernard instead of his real name of Rene Goulet. So the fans can't find him. I thought, I, I, you know, I look back at that and I go, man, how intelligent was, you know, Polo to come up with that for us, you know, to kayfabe us, the kid, the listeners at home at the time. So that we didn't know his, you know, he had a real name other than Rene Goulet and he calls him, wakes him up. You could tell he woke him up. It, there's, you know, Rene was not happy. Yeah, okay. You know, he gets off the phone with him, but just, Funny stuff like that. They had Jerry, Johnny, and Jimmy Valiant. Jimmy Valiant, wow. On the show all at the same time. They all called in, all on the show at the same time. It's right around when they got inducted into the Hall of Fame. So just a lot of cool memories. Yeah. And I'll never forget being able to, at the time, uh, talk to my uh, uh, boyhood idol, John Michael. Oh, he did you? called me uh, a pretty cool guy. I remember that. Now. Yeah, yeah I, I think I was under my alias Jay again at the time. Don't ask me why I always just said Jay instead of my real name. But uh, it was your yeah, first I, I remember, letter. I, your I, name. I don't, I don't remember what I said. I don't remember what I said. I just remember Sean Michaels responding with, "Hey, I like this Jay kid." <laughs> yeah, I, re- I remember that. Yeah, I, I I remember that as well. So that means a lot to you, though. You know, when you're growing up, it means more than whatever they're just saying, what talking out their ass, kind of, but. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. I think, I think you said Shawn Michaels, you're my favorite wrestler or something. And he goes, Hey, I like this J kid, but, um, <laughs> it would yeah, make sense. he was a heel at the time. He had just turned singles, I think, or maybe he had been singles for a couple of years. Couple years sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
But yeah, it's it's funny because he was my favorite, you know, almost essentially since the time he took Janetti threw it through the window, um, which is kind of ironic because Janetti was my favorite rocker. <laughs> but when Sean took him through him through the window, I pivoted, although I loved them both. So I was a big fan yeah. of that feud. If only it had, you know, worked the first time. Agreed. But yeah, man, that's enough for radio WWF guys. I'm not going to bore you for those not interested in that. I don't know how many wouldn't be. I'm sure that everybody would like a little tidbit of that. And I do have tons of audio cassettes of those. I'm still going through some of them. I'm still trying to find and locate a few. I know there's got to be a bag of them somewhere around here that I haven't found yet, but I do have the software and the proper little gimmick that connects to the computer to transfer all the audio over. So hopefully eventually I can get some of that out there. Obviously I don't own the rights to it, but um, I'd still like to share a little bit and let everybody enjoy in the goodness that took place 29 years ago. Yeah, that'd be amazing. But uh, yeah. So anyways, we'll move on with the show. Obviously everybody else has been talking 1987 in the WWF. I thought we'd kick things off with, you know, changing it up a little bit. Just talk about our wrestling memories. I guess next we'll move on to this 1987 stuff. Now, I don't know which week it was that you jumped in into listening to the Grenade Show. I'm sure it was quite a while, probably back in the 89 NWA stuff. I don't really know for sure, but I'm assuming, you know, you're still following when you can and listening to shows here and there as far as the 87 stuff goes. Anything catch your ear that maybe you never really paid attention to the first time around? Or I, There was a lot of things that caught me a little off guard, I'll, I'll admit, even many years as I've been trying to study things. There's certain things that just kind of pass me by until you start dissecting everything day by day, show by show, then you, you start to learn a little more. You kind of kind of know it a little better. Anything really catch you out or anything really interest you that you really never paid attention to before? Oh, man, there's been so many things, uh, especially in the, the NWA 89. And, yeah, I've listened to, I've, to my knowledge, I think I've listened to all of your Wrestling Memory Grenade shows, you know, since back in uh, when you first got started. So uh, as far as 87 WWF, though, yeah, there's plenty. Um, now, as far as, like, the main storylines, the Hogan-Andre, um, you know, some of the, the, the honky tonk man, uh, macho man, you know, things like that. Not really many surprises necessarily, but, uh, yeah, definitely like some of the undercard, um, you know, like the Can-Am connection, I guess I never realized how over they were, um, really didn't know much of the story behind the Z-Man leaving and the breakup and things like that, which kind of, you know, had, uh, Martel then, uh, teaming up with Tito. I didn't know a lot of the story behind all of that. So, I mean, right. that was kind of interesting. Another thing I realized, and it's because you take the time and effort to put all these uh, clips in, which, you know, thanks for doing that because it really kind of like puts you in the mood and like it, you know, brings you back uh, when you're hearing the actual, you know, interviews and things like that. But uh, what the heck is Brian Blair talking about when he says hung and bung? Hey, man, it's past there tense. There multiple interviews where he uses that. Is, that. is that like the past tense of hang and bang? Is yeah, that what that's we, supposed we to be? we hanged and banged. We hung and bung. Yeah, I think I have a sound. Hung and bung, also. okay. <laughs> but yeah, man, I had to laugh at that one. Uh, I rewound it and listened to it. Like, did I hear that right? I think I've even um, heard Hogan that, use it once this year, which is probably where he got it from. Blair, man, you know, <laughs> he, he bung, got dude. it. I'm sure he had a come to Jesus moment with Hulk Hogan at some point, like, brother, you got to do more than just have striped tights, dude. You know, so they, they pick up the, the masks, they get the mask gimmick going on, which that gets a pop sometimes. That's about the only thing, unfortunately, because I, I was always a giant Jim Brunzel fan. But Brian Blair of the two obviously was the one that got it. I mean, like he learned that in order for us to get to that next level, we got to have some kind of a gimmick. We got to have more personality because you see, you hear these promos. Oh, my God. You know, it, we'll get to other promos you were, you were talking about, I'm sure, here in a minute. But um. <laughs> 
Bronzel's yeah. just uh, uh this uh that uh we're waiting our turn and Brian Blair is like in a different world. Oh yeah, mean gene, let me rhyme forty words and talk to you coming at you like I'm a DJ, you know, and all this Ooh. other stuff and hanging we hanged and banged yeah. and hung and bung and you know, it's like yeah, orange blossom special down you know, down at the ice cream shit and whatever. So you know what, though, man? I mean, if they marketed a T-shirt with hung and bung on there and it kind of had like a clever, you know, I don't know. I, I might buy that T-shirt. Oh, don't give other people ideas. <laughs> yeah, wrestling yeah. memory grenade. I don't know. Hanging I, I and banging, hung and bung. Fan. Make a shirt of that when we put out some shirts here shortly. Russell Copia. Yeah. Hang and bang, hung and bung with Russell Copia. See, I hung and bung with Russell Copia. Oh. There you go. And there you go, man. I love it. There you it. go. No, I got to give you fucking like 2% of, just two, but 2% of the uh, yeah. cut now. Yeah, there you go. Some, some royalty. Yeah, yeah man. a little bit, a little bit. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, take anything away from the Mountie Jacques Rougeau or anything. Oh, but the Rougeau I promos. I, never, I, not, I guess I never realized uh, how terrible his uh, baby face promos were back in the day. Uh, you know, we all came to know. You know, once they turned the Rujos turned heel, or even his later days as the Mountie man, he had some uh, grade A quality uh, heel promos. But I'm not really buying all the. Well, you know, we we're friends with the Bulldogs, and we're friends with this team and that team, so we're just going to wait our turn. It's like, come on, man! Oh, I certainly don't buy that they're friends with the Bulldogs. Going for the belt, they're certainly not friends with the British Bulldogs. I know that much. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what's going on here in '87, but. Yeah, I don't know if that's the team that he referenced, but he was basically saying, like, this oh, I, I think you're right. team is the, the champ, and we're yeah, not going to go after them. We're just going to wait our turn. It's like, get real, dude. Yeah, it's, uh, it's you know, it's not even just, I mean, the whole thing's milk toast. I mean, it's it's over the top. The bees are just kind of there. Prunzel's just kind of like, yeah, but they are over the top baby face, like, to the next level. Uh, like, if you were going to create a, a parody of a babyface promo. That's what the Rougeau promos are. And they continue that. And they kind of yeah. use that. They use that early on in their heel turn to emphasize the heel turn. Oh, they've been being smart asses all along. Yeah. Uh, it, it was. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I knew they weren't good promos, but until I had to listen to, you know, I swear to God to you guys, <laughs> that is the least promo that I look forward to cutting, like cut the soundbite out of and putting it on the show every week. I feel like every time I play one, I'm going to lose like seven people from listening to the show. I'm just like, <laughs> oh man, there's two promos. I'm going to lose 14 people this week, you know? So, but yeah, I mean, nah, it, it kills I, I, me too sitting through it and listening to some of them. They're pretty <clears> bad, man. They're, they're pretty bad, but for as bad as they are in the babyface routine, obviously they were as over as hell up in Montreal as, as baby faces. So they knew how to generate fire when they needed to, but more so their heel stuff was just amazing. And Jacques obviously led the way he really came into his own doing that. You know, we're, we're now from Memphis. You're now from Memphis, Tennessee. We're all American boys mocking the United States, you know, speaking in French oh, in the, the song music ever. It is. I, I go on record. I've seen people create tournament brackets for the greatest theme song ever. And I'm like, if the Rougeau brothers theme isn't even in a bracket, then this tournament's null and void. Kiss my ass. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wish we could play it right now. Yeah.
was. So, uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, I, I still, appre- I mean, I, I really do appreciate it, uh, brother. And I'm not, I'm not just saying that like putting in all those clips in there, yeah. the interviews, the, not just the interviews, but you know, just the, the clips of the, the goings on and the, you know, leading up to the Saturday night's main events and things like that. I mean, it's, you know, I, I really appreciate listening to it. So yeah, it creates so context gonna... and I just try to take people back in time with it as well. You know, try to get you in the mood. Yeah, and that's, exa- that's exactly what it does. I mean, the Heenan and gorilla stuff is gold. I mean, I, that, that's something I look forward to every episode. So I mean, definitely keep all that in there. So basic, but the, the chemistry, I don't know if any two people in any, any form of, of entertainment, uh, were ever as good as those two together. Just the delivery, everything about them. Uh, Bobby Heenan, man, I there has never been anyone as quick-witted or as you know as good as he was. Just that everything he said, I was great. You know, and every once in a while, Gorilla would flub. He would say something completely incorrect, and Bobby Heenan would find a way to work it into the bit. You know, and and still make Gorilla look like the the the, the intelligent one. I was just seeing if you were paying attention, brain, and a peanut butter pie. You know, so, but, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, no, I know. I know. Growing up, uh, you didn't get the cable, so um, mm. you got the. But you know, lucky for you, in the late '80s and early '90s and stuff, syndicated TV was where it was at. That was where the big angles, everything took place. Primetime was a secondary, a third show, and I mean, nothing happened there. And, and you, you've probably seen or heard along the way. They do things on primetime, and if it didn't air on Superstars, then it didn't even happen. You know, Danny Davis had probably wrestled a half dozen times on primetime, but it wasn't until, like, October 31st on Superstars that they're like, Danny Davis is making his singles debut. It's like, well, he's been wrestling singles for six months, but all right. So, <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I mean, I didn't have uh, cable TV, but I was definitely watching any time I could, you know, Saturday morning. Right. I don't know when Spotlight started coming Friday on. Night. That might have been later on. Friday night at 10. Uh, I didn't know what year I meant, but yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would definitely watch Spotlight late Friday night or, you know, whatever, um, as much as I could. But I don't want to get too far off topic, but there was uh, uh, something that I wanted to mention because I just realized this. Yeah. 30 years ago this month, okay. Uh, I watched my first, this kind of goes along the lines of me not having cable. Well, that's I already think about this. Yeah, yeah. You already know what I'm going to say? Yeah, well, 30 on. years ago this month, I, got, I watched my first live pay-per-view with you. Uh, at our grandparents. Do you remember that? Yeah. And I was going to ask you, Summer I mean, I, I thought it was earlier. I, Express. I probably would have forgotten. So unfortunate for you that that was your first live paper. Oh, I know. Experience. Hey, uh, as a kid though, man, I was eating oh, it up. I would have took, it. yeah, I would have you know, took looking, it. Looking back, looking back now, obviously it's not the greatest card in the world, but, uh, Hey man, perfect. And, uh, Sean Michaels, if perfect I thought that and was Sean like had delivered whatever. If they had delivered what everyone was expecting, it would still be one of the greatest pay-per-views of all time, no doubt about it. I mean, even the announcers exactly. were like, "This is going to be the greatest match of all time," you know. And ugh, I don't know what I don't know what went wrong there, unfortunately. But yeah, yeah, it was still a fun little show. Unfortunately, the ending was like, "Why are they so like we're you know teenagers and kids? And like, we're, so, we're, we're like, why are they celebrating? Why are there yeah, balloons dropping?" Kids, we knew that. Yeah, yeah, even as like, kids, we were looking at each other like, why are they acting like he did something here? Like I, he won by a countout. <laughs> I just remember a giant fart in my mind, like, <laughs> we're sitting there, these but balloons hey, are cut, dropping. Let's cut to I'll be your hero one more time. Let's cut, yeah, cut it, cut it again, pal, with the new uh, segments in there, with the knocking them out and slamming them at shit. And 
I just remember thinking like this pay-per-view is fucking, and that was my birthday present, right? Like, cause that's how I figured out how to get pay-per-views at my house yeah. before I was old enough to yeah, you know, earn my, earn a living and, and pay for my own was I had SummerSlam locked because it was like always within days of my birthday. So I had no problem going, can I have SummerSlam for my birthday? And that's, that's what, you know, that's all I, I was happy with that. That was fine with me. And so that's what I got for my birthday was SummerSlam 93. And I remember, you know, basically quite a few of you guys were over watching it. And I was going to ask you, I thought of this earlier and I would have forgot. So I'm glad you brought it up. I was going to ask you, what was the first pay-per-view we watched together? And I was going to, I assumed it was SummerSlam 93. Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, later on, we would also see Starcade '94 together, and I apologize to you uh, ad nauseum and my Patreon about. Uh, I say I conned <laughs> you into going in half with me on it. I didn't really try to con you. I didn't talk you into it, like, "Hey, wouldn't this be cool, <laughs> yeah. man? Come on, man, yeah. let's do it." But I did say, "Hey, man, you want to get the paper here or whatever?" And I, you know, we we went in I half, remember. And, and then we probably ordered some V's or something. I'm sure we did, and it probably got there at three thirty in the morning. Four, oh, you're being generous. I would have said four a.m. Oh, there was this place V's. It had everything on Earth on the menu. The problem was it took about five hours to get to your doorstep, and I'm not even exaggerating. There was one night we ordered at like midnight, and like we were going to bed at like five six a.m. They come knocking on the back door with this like fucking hundred dollar order. This is nineteen nineties hundred dollar orders. Bucket of spaghetti and meatballs, pizza. Sounded good at midnight, you know, as, as teenagers and shit. Yeah, meatball stuff. <laughs> good stuff. Just an entire kitchen oh, table full of food. Oh, good yeah. stuff. Yeah, I'll eat it when I wake well, up. We had, yeah, we we had watched plenty of wrestling pay-per-views prior to SummerSlam 93. That was just my first live one with you. Which right. Is, you know, always Together. holds a special place in my mind and my heart, you know. Well, other than, you know, Survivor Series, almost all pay-per-views, for the most part, were on Sunday nights, school nights. So there was no way, you you know, as a kid, you were getting over to my house to watch it. Not that I even got very many early on myself. I would have to go over random cousins' houses and things to go watch it. And even then, I, I missed a couple. They were taped for me. The, we got lucky in our neck of the woods, our cable company. Not all of them did this, but, excuse me, guys, I'm burping over here, burping up beer. But they would show the re, replay, which came on right after the original live version, for free. So if you missed the, re- the the original, you got the second one for free. In fact, I remember when they changed companies for a brief bit there in the mid-90s, they stopped doing that. And I had a freaking fit, man. <laughs> so I'd, I'd uh, record yeah. one for me and record one for whomever else or vice versa. If I had somebody else getting the pay-per-view, they would do that. And then all of a sudden they stopped doing that. I called and said, no, th- you've been doing this for uh, six, seven years. Well, that was the other company. We don't do that. It didn't last too long, but... It was still a pain in the butt while they were doing that. I don't remember when that was exactly, but, but yeah, I, I do remember, remember you telling me about that. SummerSlam '93. I do, you know, I remember that fondly. Everybody in the living room sitting there watching it, enjoying it. Good stuff. Good times. Yeah, even as bad as Starcade '94 was, though. Again, being a kid without cable and not being able to see many live, you know, events at the time, it probably wasn't as terrible as we know it to be now. You know what I mean? Well, I, so. it, it's pretty bad, but um, I think yeah. the opener yeah. was like Jim Duggan's last Alex good match. Alex White and somebody? Who was it? Uh, Triple H, wasn't it? Was it Triple H? Was it? Yeah, yeah. Hunter, uh, Triple H and Alex Wright, right? Jean-Paul Levesque and Alex Wright. That was probably okay for an undercard match. I don't remember. I haven't seen it since probably then. And then I, I remember, yeah. I think, didn't they kick off with like Duggan and Vader? I think it was like Duggan's last good match. His first good match in years because he had to, you know, fight for real. <laughs> to get through Vader yeah, that, there. that sounds right 
Yeah. That sounds right. I just I just remember the and then Hulk Hogan uh, and the, yeah, event. the booty 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 man dude. Ugh. Was he the man with no name or the butcher? What was his name or alias during that? He match? hadn't lost to Hogan yet, so he was still the butcher. He wasn't the man with no name until okay. he like separated, I believe, or whatever. Yeah, it was bad times. Like, uh, yeah, Hogan that, came in, brought all his buddies with him, whether they could work or not. You know, <laughs> and then the ones that could work, they didn't really get used right, so. They became sharks and other things down the line. I'm not a shark. I'm, I'm a man. A, I'm not a shark. I'm not a fish. <laughs> no, he came in as avalanche, though. He couldn't be earthquake, so he was avalanche. Yeah. Freaking ridiculous. Yeah. Unbelievable. Oh, uh, dungeon, times, the whole Dungeon of Doom days uh, with Hogan, too. You got to find that clip and play it for, for one of your shows, man. But, oh, it's not hot. Well, I can play that, but without the video, man, it's just nowhere near as funny. You're right. You're right. Oh, my God. All right, man. I, I'm I'm getting too far off topic now. No, you're good. You're good. No, we're not. There is no topic. Topic is the memories. Okay. It's the wrestling well, memory I guess grenade. It, yeah, just talking about our memories and enjoying your 100th episode, man. I've been talking about 1987 again. WWF for like 876 episodes. And I'm only on episode 100, so. That's where I'm at right now. And I still got about another six, seven shows to go, at least, I think. We got to cover November, December, and, of course, Survivor Series. Looking forward to that. At Richfield Coliseum. Yeah, right down the road. Good old Richfield. It was not right down the road. For those who are not familiar with the <laughs> Cleveland area, I don't know whose bright idea this was. Hey, let's build an arena in the middle of nowhere in a city that's, well, it's, named, it's aptly named Richfield. There's a lot of rich people in that area. but it's also, I wouldn't call it rural, but very, I don't know, very spread out. There's not a lot going on there at all. It's like a 40-minute drive from Cleveland. Uh, it's it, it was literally in the middle of nowhere. I mean, to get to the building, uh, you had to drive miles once you got into Richfield. It felt like down like this weird road. There's just all trees. It was like a, in the middle of a forest. And um, on the way, there. this is a funny story. I never got to do this to you, I don't think, because you never went to a, a Richfield show with me. But I would, when I would go no, to the Richfield Coliseum as a kid, I would uh, tell you know our other cousins and things. I, there was this log cabin for whatever reason in the middle of this forest on this long road to um, the Richfield Coliseum, and I would tell always tell them as a kid. I would go, "That's Hillbilly Jim's house," and they would go, "Is it really?" I go, "Yeah, man, that's Hillbilly Jim's house." And <laughs> oh, I don't think I've ever heard that story. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, and uh, they believed it, you know. And I remember one year, like. I don't know if we were driving past it or if this was just at home or something, but one of them finally asked me, was like, is that really Hillbilly Jim's house? And I'm like, no, nah, man. <laughs> you don't friggin' live in a cabin, I hope. You know, so yeah. in the middle of Richfield, Ohio. But That's it was, good. <laughs> it, was it was good stuff. <laughs> I was thinking, thinking, even back then. <laughs> yeah, good stuff, but. You you were talking to me a little uh, a couple few days ago. We weren't really planning for what we were going to discuss here, but we were talking about how wrestling truly engulfed our lives as kids growing up. And oh yeah, you were like, oh, I was going to tell them this story, so I'm going to let them tell you a story. And a lot of some people use alarm clocks. <laughs> but why don't you tell them once upon a time how you were awoken one morning? I woke up early yeah, and you were asleep, and it kind of pissed me off. That, like you wouldn't wake up because I'm like, hey, I want to get the day going. Let's go do some fun stuff. And you were sleeping, and I want to let everybody know well, how, how that worked out. Yeah. Well, in my defense, we were up until 5 a.m. waiting for our V's delivery. Probably. 
Maybe maybe it was one of those nights. I don't know. Yeah, but for whatever reason, it was probably getting a little late in the morning, a little uh, too late for my brother's taste here. So, you know, I'm rolling around. I think he's probably tried to wake me up uh, normally a few times. And I I finally, uh, you know, come to my senses and I open my eyes uh, about halfway. And all I can see, (laughs) all I can see is my brother over top of me. I'll try not to be too graphic here. <laughs> and he's on the arm of the I'm sleeping on the couch by the way in my grandparents living room. He's on the arm of the couch squatting over me. Okay, that's all I see when I With open clothes my eyes. on, with clothes on, guys. <laughs> yes, yes guys, with clothes on. <laughs> and I don't know if you're like saying yo or something man, but I got I got the point of what you were about to do. He was about to give me a freaking bond bonsai. Well, I, bonsai. Right I yelled bonsai. I yelled bonsai. Yeah, you probably yeah yelled bonsai, yeah, and I think you came down actually, man. I did. So I did. I, I'm, I'm, I said I'm, I'm I did. thinking I got out of the way, and that's how you got me up off the couch. No, I landed on you, but I just didn't do any weight. It was just like a light, light tap. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah because so at least I couldn't it get was you up. Work, so thank you. Right, I couldn't. I couldn't get you up, so I put my right foot on the couch arm, my left foot on the back of the couch, put my put my probably my left hand to balance myself on the on the couch arm, kind of center myself, get it ready. And then you're sleeping while this is all going on. And then I'm just like, Bonsai! And I think that's when you opened your eyes, and then here comes this ass crashing down onto your chest. Yeah. But it was like, it was like a work, it was a work bonsai. It was was still fun. Yeah. I guess it was too late for me by the time I I opened it. I don't think you went back to sleep after that one. Yeah, I don't think so. But you know what? I don't think that was the only time. I think we may have, you may have done it again. Like, I tried to recreate it, but it wasn't the same. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's the time that I rolled out of the way or something. I don't know. But, yeah, man, that first time, I was just like, what the? We were so, like, infatuated with wrestling. Like, everything we did was wrestling. Even when we played with our G.I. Joes, they weren't right. G.I. Joes. No. <laughs> they, they were wrestlers. And we were and I know a lot of people. Cards. A lot of people have done that, but people don't understand the detail in which we <clears> went <throat> to our G.I. We named every G.I. Joe we had a wrestler, and that person was that wrestler. And if that G.I. Joe broke, rather than just rename another guy the British Bulldog, you would go grab some like electrical tape or super glue or whatever the hell and slap the part back on because you can't have another British ball. It has to be the Iron Grenadier or whatever nonsense, you know. It's nonsense, exactly. but it, was, it was good times. Yeah, I had uh, two Toxo Vipers for for GI Joe fans. I had two Toxo Vipers, and they were my Bolsheviks. And I got picked one up for like I don't know if my cousin gave it to me for free because he used to love to color everything with his red marker like for blood. And but I had one covered in blood red marker. And I had a regular one, and I made the shittier one, the bloody one, for Zukov because he was the shittier <laughs> Bolshevik. Um, <laughs> and who knew, man? Like you, I think you had like at one point, a hundred and fifty, two hundred GI Joes. So I mean, our cards were. We'd spend all night making the card, and <laughs> by the, the time card. we got down to the third or fourth match, we'd have to stop because we were yeah. dead tired. But who would have known? We really could have probably had the same card with 20 G.I. Joes and just, like, reuse the guys. But as you I said, probably had more matches. Right. Yeah, you're right. You're had to right. have an identity. Yeah, they did. Sergeant Slaughter was Sergeant Slaughter. That one made sense. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that I was, was going to say, I think we played more Jimmy Powers matches than we did Hulk Hogan matches because <laughs> we did so yeah. many prelim matches and never <laughs> got to the main events. We'd fall. We'd get tired, go to bed. But, yeah, it was good stuff. Yeah, we should have started with the main event. I don't think we ever got hit to that game. Yeah, I remember watching a Coliseum video one time and watching a Battle Royal where I think it was Jimmy Hart slid under the ring 
waited till the end came out and dumped like JYD and Greg Valentine together and he won. And so I stole the idea and I, I reused it on a, <laughs> we were doing a battle Royal and a Hasbro ring with our GI Joes. And we got down to whoever, and you thought whoever won. And then I grabbed my Rick Martell out from under the table and he comes in and dumps warrior or whatever. And I go, no, the model yeah. one, the model one. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was the ultimate warrior. And You're you had right. no, you had no idea that he was like sitting. I knew what I was going to do before we even started the match. He's like deciding down there. Well, yeah, it was like an hour, <laughs> an hour, hour and a half later, and he was still under the ring. <laughs> I remember the GI Joe, the 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 model was too. I don't know his GI Joe name, but yeah. I remember what he looked like. He was yeah, that was gray, gray ninja. Yeah, gray. Yeah, gray guy. Yeah, I don't remember his name either. But, uh, good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> That's so, awesome. Let's see. Ah, oh, take you back. Let's see. You were you said something to me about in '87 that um, just trying to get something else in. You're trying to work it into the story a little bit. Uh, that Jake Roberts the suspension. Yet you didn't you didn't know about that. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I didn't know too much about that. So that was another thing I learned. I, I could go on and on about things that I kind of learned in '87 if they're not like mainstream news because that's just not like a year that I took too much time. Right. You know, researching. No, there's. Uh, but yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, I knew the the basics tough. of the entire year going in, but there's just so many little things I didn't notice. I knew Jake was suspended, but mo- more so because of all of the uh, you know stuff over the last twenty years, just everything on the internet that's come out. Not not about what's been going on with Jake late, you know, in those years, but rather just in the business itself. Oh yeah, the suspensions. I've heard Jake reference that and how he was kind of set up to do something the night before or whatever and things, but um. I didn't realize how long he was out period until I actually did this show with all the uh, injury stuff. He, he was, he lost, he failed the drug test. He was going to be suspended, but he was hurt. So they waited until he was going to come back. They recorded, you know, they, they did it pretty smart. Even when he was out, they used the snake pit segments. He, they knew he was going to be suspended. So they recorded a couple matches off a of TV to let it air through this, some of the suspension. So you never realized back That's in the true. day when somebody was hurt, or, or anything like that. That's what, you know, 20, 25 years ago when guys would get hurt and be out, I'd say that never happened when I was a kid, but silly me, it did happen. TBS, he's out right now heading into November for a couple of weeks. But the reason we mm-hmm. didn't notice was because of those TV tapings, you know, they'd hide it really well and they'd spread out the matches and the entire time they were out, we, we saw them on TV anyway. So we never realized that they were out at the house shows and things like that. Yeah, and to be honest, I mean, I didn't even know they were, uh, you know, drug testing in 1987. I didn't know they really got serious about that until the whole, you know, steroid trials well, and all that. Well, the, so. the trick is, what were they testing for? They weren't testing for steroids in 1987. I, it wasn't even uh, right. technically illegal yet in 1987. But also, at the same time, that was the first drug test they ever implemented. So, you know, that they had to start cracking down at that point because the the Sheik and Volkov, or the Sheik and uh, Duggan thing, basically. Is what prompted that. Yeah. Weren't they caught traveling together, which is also, you know, they broke kayfabe, which was. Well, that was uh, more of the why they got, well, they got booted more for that than they did the drugs, to be honest with you. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It was like, well, you got caught together, pal, and you're in the middle of a feud. So, way to go. Right. So you're you're done. Obviously, Duggan comes back a few months later. They actually used the Iron Sheik for a tour, like a really brief, their very first European tour. It's like two shows, but. I just covered that, I think, a couple of weeks ago, but they bring him back, you know, and then they try to bring him back in 88 for a little bit, but he's just uh, no good by then in the ring. Not that, you know, he was great by 87 standards, but man, what a machine that guy was when his, you know, body, you know, wasn't, wasn't deteriorated. Yeah. 
and decades later, he's winning the the gimmick battle royal at WrestleMania. So yeah, uh, and you know why? Do you, do you ever hear that story? <laughs> yeah, I think you told me actually. It's because he couldn't uh, take a bump over couldn't, the top rope. Yeah, his couldn't knees take the, too bad or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> couldn't take the bump over the top hey, rope. I mean, so. I guess that's as, that's as good a reason as any. I suppose. I suppose. That's one way. <laughs> so many wrestlers are like, "Why didn't I think of that shit? I can't. I can't yeah. be pinned because I can't take a bump. I gotta win." Who are you rooting for in that one? Oh, probably bro- a, a brother guys. love. Probably brother love or brother, Kamala. Brother love. Brother love. Runner up yeah. Kamala. That would have been my if I was booking. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah oh, that, been I, good. that was the first time brother love was referenced or used since, you know, he disappeared. Well, I mean, he did come back for like those few weeks there at the end of 95 into 96, which was just kind of weird. But other than that, that was really the first time brother love nowadays, you know, it's a little more tongue in cheek with Bruce Pritchard working there, especially, but yeah, back in those days, man, you, you didn't, they didn't reference old gimmicks. It's like that never happened. Or, you know, even if it was like a year ago, this didn't happen. They just kind of forget about it. Yeah. Brother love, man. <laughs> love that. They'll love those segments. I've, uh, you know, I've, I don't know if I've ever told this story on air. I was accidentally brother love, uh, in 1990 Halloween. Accidentally brother love. <laughs> accidentally, huh? Yeah. Yeah. How'd this happen? Well, you know, mama or grandma raised me, uh, I was going to be the wolf man, like a werewolf and, you know, go get the paint, but you got to style the paint, you know, on the face. You got to make it look whatever. Mama, let's just say, you know, she wasn't like, you know, <laughs> probably not a, a makeup stylist, especially to create horror, whatever. So she takes this paint, kind of mixes it up a little, whatever, which way. And it's more of a reddish than the brown that it's supposed to be. And she just starts smearing it on my face and she gets about done and she starts <laughs> She looks at me and starts laughing. And I'm like, what? 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 Why are you laughing? She's like, <laughs> you look like that guy on the wrestling with the red, you know, red fans. And, oh, my God. Brother love. Because she she wow, didn't watch wrestling. For even knowing him. Well, yeah. she would know. She had to know. I had wrestling on 20, you know, any time I could. So he was yeah. one of the very standout characters of the time. The preacher gimmick. He didn't preach the Bible. He preached the book of love. That's how it got to stay on the air all those, you know, years until, you know, he finally did some evangelical shit on there and it went too long after that he was gone. <laughs> but he did you, uh did you put on a red shirt and a white suit? I kind of put some stuff together and just kind of rolled with it after she told me I looked like Brother Love. I said, "Oh, I, I, oh, I could roll with that." I was a fan of I always loved awesome. I, I always loved Brother Love. So I wasn't like a I, he wasn't like a heel to me. He was cool. I loved I loved that character. I didn't I don't know that I understood it 100% at the time it, even though you know I was 10 11 whatever the hell but it's it was it was funny it was it was a good time and then you know it turns around the next year I was supposed to go as the warrior and there was the last year I trick or treated was 1991 and I was going to go as the ultimate warrior even though he had you know left like 2 months prior but who, who knew what was going mm-hmm. on at that point in time and uh I, I got a pillowcase. First year I ever took a pillowcase. I always took a normal trick-or-treat bag or whatever. But uh, I got this uh, pillowcase uh, out, and I decided I was going to start, you know, drawing a warrior signs on it or something because I had the makeup and everything ready to put on. And all of a sudden I found myself, I don't know how it happened. I was just kind of doodling on the pillowcase, and I wound up drawing a scorpion. And I said, oh, shit, this looks pretty cool. I'm going to go with Sting. So I painted up a Sting instead, so I actually – Went out as Sting rather than the Warrior that year. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's awesome, man. <clears throat> I have an Ultimate Warrior Halloween story. I, I tried to go as the Warrior one year. Uh, had the you know the the two strings for the tassels. Um, I even went out and got one of those, or maybe uh, mom had purchased the the um, the actual WWE or WWF uh, face paint kit in like this little yeah, black box. That. Is it Road Warriors think, and Ultimate Warrior paint? Yeah, I was going to uh, say the a hawk and animal, which animal space paint I always thought was pretty cool, too, with the spider and all that. Right. But it had the uh, the Road Warriors, the Ultimate Warrior was on there. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. But it didn't come with, like, any stencils. It was basically like, uh, you know, those little the, the, the paint things that you'd buy for, like, a kindergartner. And then, like, a paintbrush and maybe, like, some of the, the creamy uh, type paint. And basically, you just have at it and do it yourself. Right. So needless to say, you know, at the young age of whatever I was at the time, nine, ten years old, uh, it didn't come out looking anything like the Ultimate Warrior. But I do remember giving it the old college try. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I remember the I remember the kit. Yeah, I definitely remember the kit. But uh that's that's, that's I can't I came across one of those going through my garage. I got a ton of boxes in my garage, as you might know from being down here, but uh sure. I came across one of those. It was opened, but it still had all of the, uh, you know, the the paint and all the original contents in there. But I came across one of those not too long ago. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I don't know how you ended up with so many of those. It was like you had more than one of them. Good old, good old stuff, <laughs> well, though, think, man. Well, years after that whole fiasco, I remember seeing them. I don't remember if it was Refco or one of those older stores that used to be. Uh, around back in the day but i think they were like 99 cents or you know they were all on clearance or they were just trying to get rid of them one year so i think i probably bought like a handful of them <laughs> very cool yeah so that's man, neither here nor there it's good stuff back in those days you know there's another uh memory since we're doing memory <laughs> grenade here i was gonna tell another wrestling memory that i i don't know how well you remember it but i go back to the fall of 1991 uh you were clearly spent the night over my house or wherever we were watching. I think it was worldwide WCW worldwide. And Lex Luger was the champion at that point. Cause Flair had jumped over to Vince uh, and uh, they were doing the, uh, they were doing the announcing and uh, I don't, I don't know if they were interviewing Luger or interviewing what the deal was, but Rick Steiner kind of comes up there, you know, and he's doing the gimmick where he's, you know, he's Rick Steiner. So he's aloof. He doesn't realize that Lex <laughs> has been a heel for a couple of months. So he's kind of talking to Lex, like Lex is his buddy, but Lex is like, get the fuck out of here kind of stuff. Like, you know, he was being, he was being real life Lex Luger. It's like, yeah, all right, get dismissive. out of here. Yeah. Very yeah, dismissive. Like like, all right. All right. <laughs> and Rick keeps talking. Rick keeps talking. And Lex is like, blah, blah, blah. And, and Rick's like, I could beat you. I could beat you. He goes, what? You know, he's like, he's like, get the fuck out of here. He's like, no, I could beat you, Lex. I can, I can, you know, whatever. And Rick runs down to the ring or whatever the case is. And he's having fun. You know, Lex is his friend in his mind. And Luger finally, you know, he's not going to be shown up. He's the champion, you know, he goes down to ringside, gets in the ring. It's not a real match, but within a matter of seconds, uh, this is when Scotty was out with the torn bicep. And so Rick they had to find something for Rick to do. And Rick belly to bellies Lex Luger and makes his own one, two, three. But Rick Steiner pins the WCW champion. And we were sitting there on my bed watching that. And we got so excited, so wrapped up into the story. We started both like bouncing. Yeah, so did we. we started bouncing up and down on the bed, just bouncing like I was like, it just really sucked us in. I mean, and it's such a passive memory. It's very small, if you want to call it a feud, because it was a two part feud. It was that. And then their match at the clash. It was that they did that to set up a match to find Luger an opponent for the clash. But for us, it was just such a, you know, 
a huge point in time. We didn't get to share a lot of big moments in wrestling history together. And that was, it was a big, big deal. Yeah. Yeah. That was big. I thought you were going to go even further with that. I think that's also the day probably in our excitement, no doubt. I thought that was the day that you had like power bombed me <laughs> on the bed. And then I, I got the wind knocked out of me for the first time in my life. I thought I was going to die. Do you remember that? <laughs> I I didn't experience it, so I, I don't remember, I don't remember I think, it at all. I think it was that same day, and it might have been like right after that segment. <laughs> oh, that's that's an unfortunate part of the memory. I guess I forgot or never knew. Really, I mean, it's not a no, 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 no. I mean, it's funny now, man, because obviously people get the wind knocked out of them. They know they're going to live, but well, like I'm, the first time, in- <laughs> I'm just laughing at it because you got the knock, you got the wind knocked out of you on a bed. Like, how hard did I power bomb you? Jesus Christ, not good. <laughs> I apologize. You, I don't know. I just remember getting the wind knocked out of me. I but I lived, man. and uh, it just adds to the memory. So, I guess. You know. That's an unfortunate <laughs> part of the story. Not at all, man. Not at all. Uh, I have another, uh, something else just came to mind. I don't know how much time, I don't want to take up too much time on your show here. But uh, I, I have one more thing. Yeah. And it's something that I think changed our lives for the better, and it's wrestling related. But do you remember when the first time that I called you and uh, I came home again? I don't know why I keep referencing Refco, but I'm pretty sure the CBS guys. I found the PWI Wrestling Almanac. Remember that? The PWI, the very first 96, maybe? 95. Okay. You could be right. Could be 96. Yeah, Yeah, somewhere around there, 95, 96. Yeah, the PWI Almanac. Yeah, that changed my world. I mean, being able to open up that thing and seeing all these wrestlers from all these different promotions and it, you know, had pictures, title histories. I mean, I had to reassess my what I thought I knew about wrestling once I got a hold of one of those. But yeah, I didn't know if you remember, man, that was like a huge, a huge thing for us back then. Well, we didn't have Internet like we do now. No, the only t- well, I would get magazines all the time. I was huge into magazines every year. I got less and less interested because it became about more and more things I was not interested in. But um, in 90, 91, 92, and before that, too, but I mean, those are the last years I really, really, you know, got, got all, a lot of the magazines, The P- mostly after. I mean, I did collect WWF magazines at one point, but I kind of saw them for what they were, and I, I was more interested in learning wrestling than looking at cool pictures and things. So by 92, I, you know, I was still grabbing a lot of stuff, and you can, if, if I just go back, my collection's still here. I have it in big, giant bins, you know, plastic bins, so I still have it. The magazines haven't went anywhere, but if you look every year, there's less, there's less in 93, less in 94, very little by 95, you know, and whatever, it would have to be something that really caught my eye. And, uh, you call me and you're like, dude, there's this thing, it's called the PWI Almanac or, or whatever the hell. And, and you start explaining to me what's in it. Oh, listen to these results. Oh, there's dark matches and this and that. And I, I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> like, I was like, Holy, like, I, I need this. I need, it was like. I don't know. It was like a drug, man. I didn't even have it yet. And I wanted it, you know, I said, Oh my God, I need this. I need this thing. Like a, it was like, it was like a, you know, sorry, Lord, but it was kind of like a wrestling Bible to sort of you yeah. know, at, at the time, you know, nothing like that had ever existed prior they to had everything. So it was very clever of them to come out with that. I wonder how much money they made off of that because I never found it anywhere. I think it was two or three years in a row where you kept buying me a copy when you purchased yourself a copy because everywhere I went, I couldn't find it the first few years uh, that it that was out. And I, and I think I got the first four or five before I, I d- didn't really, well, internet was here by then and didn't matter as much, yeah. but 
man when that came <clears> out it was it was huge giant yeah definitely yeah i found one of those not too long ago too i got it sitting over here in my bar room pwa almanac but yeah it was, i don't know if it was the first one though it's probably one of the later ones because like you said we probably bought them for about four or five years straight i think I, mine has like stone cold on the front i wore that uh original one out i mean to the point where the bind was kind of falling off almost i mean i wore that first one out trying to learn and oh, yeah. and everything from it you know that's kind of like just another level to the historian in me you know just trying to learn and go through everything now, as time went on, some of the other ones, the covers aren't great anymore, but the, the book's still in great shape. But uh, that first one, man, it's definitely been been worn worn out pretty damn good. Uh, I haven't looked yeah, at it in, you know, since that. the 1990s, but, man, good old days. Yeah, the good old days. But, uh, yeah, man, I don't know if there's anything else you want to touch on. You're more than welcome. Whatever time you want to use here, is, uh, it's all you. You know, I got nothing, <laughs> nothing in particular, but there's t- always tons of memories and there's any, you know, topic yeah. or anything. I mean, I'll be respectful of your time. I think, you know, I, I've had said my piece, but hey, there is one last thing, brother, that I would love to uh, address here. Yeah. So this was unplanned. Uh, but while I'm thinking of it, uh-huh. I just want to uh, selfishly as a as a, a avid fan of your show. Uh, and a listener, I want to uh, petition that your next topic, is it possible that we kind of continue the, the, the roll into 1988 WWF after you're done with 87? Just uh, want to throw that out there. Oh, you know what? At the end of the show, which, I mean, you're my last guest, so this technically is the, in the end of the show. I'd planned to do this after, you know, the guests and things, but it's kind of, it would be more fun, I guess, to do it with somebody on the show here with me. So I've lobbied and thought about a lot of things, you know, back in the day before I even started 87 WWF, I even, you know, included the UWF, Bill Watts's territory and ideas of things I could do here on the grenade show. But now that I have regional wrestling and Watts is technically the end of the territory era, I kind of have another format and area to do that. I'm doing UWF 86 right there right now. So then I, you know, I'll be honest with you guys. My, my passion right now would, I would have loved to have went into WCW 1992 it's just the era that hasn't been dissected and looked at. I, I I don't know that it has been anyway to the level I would like to to it have been. It's the Watts takes over. Everything's kind of changing up. But really, it was a, a reason to watch so many great wrestling matches. The angles are there. They're fine. Watts knew how to build heat. But it was the wrestling that he, he forced the guys to go out there and do each and every week that I really wanted to learn from and, and just experience again. It's like watching a territory era uh, show in the 1990s, but you know, um, and I'm not blaming them guys, but I know Mike Mills and the guys over at the BTT are covering 1992 Saturday night right now. And I did my 1989 project at the same time they were doing 1989 world championship wrestling. It was kind of fun. Cause I was a little behind them. Then I got a little ahead of them because I was doing months at a time and we kind of knew what each other was talking about when he would post things, I'd make comments and vice versa and stuff. And it was fun, but I don't want to do that again already. You know, with Mike already covering the year, I'd like to visit that down the road though, for my, for my own guilty reasons, just to really enjoy the wrestling and stuff with rude and sting and steamboat, Wyndham, Dustin Rhodes, uh, and and on down the line, the the dangerous Alliance altogether. But for now I'm going to leave it be because I knew I'm like, man, that's kind of where I wanted to go, but I knew, they were going to continue on after they finished 91 WCW. They were going to continue on with 92. 
I don't want to do something similar to something somebody else is doing right now. So I made a final decision based on requests, uh, specifically yours, because you've asked me, I don't know, maybe three or four times over the course of 87 Project. <laughs> well, so what do you think you're doing next? And um, I said, well, I, you know, I wasn't sure at the time, but each time I grew a little more interested in doing it. And uh, at this point, I guess uh, it's time to let the cat out of the bag, guys. Where are we headed next here on the grenade? Well, drum roll, please. All right, guys, and here we are. Is that your lame drum roll? Is that the best you could do? Don't you have a drum set laying around? I don't somewhere? have my dr- I don't have my drumsticks handy, man. What do they, what do they say on the uh, on the Step Brothers? I'm going to put my nutsack on your drum set. <laughs> no, guys, but here it is. We are headed next here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. After we finish up 1987, we will continue to roll on. Yes, indeed, brother man. We're going to roll on and continue on here with the WWF World 1988. Oh, here we come. Yeah. Mm-hmm, I like it. Huh? Awesome. So we're nice, going to follow man. this up. We're going to continue to follow the Mega Powers, the inaugural Royal Rumble, the first ever main event, Andre the Giant winning the gold, selling it to Ted DiBiase, leading to WrestleMania four and all the good stuff that follows all throughout the year of 1988. And we'll see what we do. Do we just keep going after that for a while? Eh, could be. I'm not really sure. That's a ways off. Not going to worry about that right now. But 1988, not necessarily my favorite year in the WWF. Obviously, I think it really peaked for me in my fandom as a kid in 89 and 90. But to get to 89 or 90, I guess it's kind of cool to add some context. It's going to take me quite a few months to get through 88. But it's going to be interesting, you know, because 88 is kind of one of those years where, yeah, Savage was champion for most of the year. And it's a little different. There's no Hulkamania. Uh, leading the way necessarily, at least by himself. So it's going to be a fun time. 1988, here we come. Yeah, it's the year of the macho, man. And don't forget, you know, I'm I'm sure you'll, you know, bring this uh, bring this up, but you got your inaugural Royal Rumble, you know, not on pay-per-view, I don't think, but uh, right. you got that going for you. You got the first SummerSlam was in 88. Yeah, forgot about that. Um, SummerSlam's also in 88, yep. So, I mean, and the most important, it's the bridge to 89, which is that's an even better year of WWF. That's right. So maybe. I think a lot yeah, of Yeah, 89, 90, 91, those are probably, you know, my three favorite years. And again, maybe it's because I grew up during those years and I was an impressionable kid. But uh, even like looking back when I have free time in the evenings, uh, I'm usually watching something from that time period, you know, 88, 89, 90, you know, early 90s until it got to maybe like, you know, uh, late 92-ish, uh, 93. I-, I love those whole four or five years, man. So, yeah, I mean, that's where the yeah. business started to take a dive. So it's not like it was one person that felt that way. It's clearly, you know, it was a changing of the guard. Everybody was leaving. And it really peaked at 89 because everybody that started coming in after WrestleMania three was still there. Everybody, you know, all the new guys were coming in. Everything just really peaked 89, 90 uh, for me as well. I mean, Warrior became champion. Warrior, we were huge Warrior fans. You know, it's kind of funny growing up, I never met somebody that wasn't a quote unquote Hulkamaniac during that era. There wasn't a single person that didn't say they, you know, they were a Hulk Hulkamaniac fan. Now it's cool to say. A lot of people say it based on some of the nonsense he's done or said over the last 10, 15 years. Whether it's true or not, whether they were fans or not, I can't say for sure. But I love that I can go back and I can ask anybody I knew as a kid, you, my cousins, whomever it may be, did I like Hulk Hogan? No, I was never a fan of Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yeah. 
We didn't even draft, neither one of us even drafted Hulk Hogan in our little uh, fantasy uh, wrestling thing that we did a couple of years ago. Remember yeah, that? Yeah, video game. Yeah, yeah. Hulk Hogan's just sitting there laying dormant on our, <laughs> while we're dragging everybody else out of the 80s into our, our uh, video game, uh, our video draft, right. video game draft. Yeah, but I mean, it is what it is, but I just, I was never a fan and I was so, never so happy. And I know, every, you know, Warrior gets a lot of shit, wasn't, wasn't a great worker or whatever, but as a kid, man, the, yeah. just the, uh, the look. Was... Yeah, we didn't know all that behind the scenes crap. So, you know, we just saw him on screen and we loved him. So. Yeah. And I was, you know, ecstatic when he became the champion. I was, you know, going into that WrestleMania 6. I, you know, hope uh, for I've nothing more. I watched WrestleMania 6 a thousand times, probably. <laughs> yeah. It was a uh, favorite WrestleMania for many years after that. I don't know. You know, it wasn't necessarily the greatest work rate of all time throughout the show. Although I think Hogan and Warrior was, a, you know, a damn good match. Overall, you know, it wasn't the greatest, most wrestling in the ring caliber WrestleMania ever, but it was it was great to us because it it peaked. Right. It really did peak there. It had all the guys that you know were part of that era on the show. Whether the matches meant anything or not, they were still there. I'll tell you this, man. As uh, as we close up shop here, it is 1988. WWF is uh, where we're headed next, so we're just gonna keep keep on keeping on, really going to close out the month of december and move into the new year of 1988 it's going to be fun heart foundation going to turn face the rue is eventually going to turn heel like you said you reminded me you know the very first SummerSlam coming up i believe this 88 is also the year they start adding more saturday night's main events so there's going to be a lot more special episodes in 1988 as well wrestlemania 4 ooh, that's going to be a little bit of a bear to get through lots of matches there like 16 matches or something <laughs> It's kicks off kicks off hot with that fun battle royal, man, but that tournament's a bear to get through, I'll tell you. But yeah, it's uh it's good times, man. I appreciate you coming on the show and hopefully, you know, if time when time permits and and everything permits on the show again and something opens up, I would absolutely love to have you back on here to talk more uh memories, but not just the biggest memories we have of watching the first pay per view together or how awful Hogan and the Butcher was or summer you know, whatever whatever the case may be. (laughs) Just talking our our yeah. thoughts throughout a period of time, like go back to 1990 and kind of talk about, oh, Mr. Perfect, the Texas tornado, and just kind of, you know. Oh, yeah. In all the years, when you're, you know, pe- people might relate to this. If you have siblings or cousins or great friends of yours that you grew up around and watched wrestling with, you probably, since they were so close to you, you probably didn't sit down and pick their brain and, and do an interview with them and go, oh, what did you think of this guy? What did you think of that guy? So. I'd be curious to just sit down and name drop some people and just kind of get your memories and your thoughts on them when you were a kid. What, you know, just overall, cause we never discussed like, well, what did you think about the Texas tornado? Well, I never knew he had one foot. I'll tell you that, you know, so when we were kids, so <laughs> yeah, I didn't it, know that as a kid. Um, I know he had his issues. I was so, so upset when he lost that intercontinental title, you know, back to Hennig. And I was so pissed off at DiBiase. It looked like they were going to a DiBiase Von Erich feud, which would have been awesome. But they kind of pivot yeah. and go to Dustin instead. But yeah, just good times. And I look forward to talking stuff because I know you're a huge Heart Foundation fan. We love the tag teams, Heart Foundation, Demolition stuff. So it'd be fun to talk about that kind of stuff, you know, in the future. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to be back anytime, man. Anytime we could uh, fit it in, you can have me whenever you want. Very cool. Maybe we'll have you on board, you know, for uh, discuss one of the uh, the big upcoming shows like a, the Royal Rumble or um, a WrestleMania or something like that. Maybe you'll keep me awake to discuss that big long four hour WrestleMania card. <laughs> uh, it'd be nice to have somebody to feed off of for that one. 
Yeah, man. Maybe, maybe and, I any way I could assist you through that one. And it's more fun because we can sit here and do what we normally do and make fun of things. I can make fun of Brutus Beefcake or Hulk Hogan doing backstrokes, you know, talking about Donald Trump and doing backstrokes <laughs> off the off the thing and whatnot. It'll be a good time. So I look forward to having you back. I'll try to start working you in more. But 100 episodes it took to get you on the show, and all it took was a, just a quick phone call and say, hey, how would you feel about being part of the show? Because I know you're a busy dude, and this isn't really your cup of tea, and you're not really set up for this. And, you know, you got other things going on throughout the day that maybe you're not available or, or whatnot. But it's I appreciate you making the time for me here tonight, man. Yeah, anytime, brother. Like I said, you know, uh, it was my pleasure. Uh, congratulations again on your 100th episode. And I look forward to the next time. You know, maybe it'll be uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah, sounds good to me. Thank you again, everybody. My brother, Jesse. And oh my God, guys, what a fun show. We heard from John McAdam, Jamie Ward, Roman Gomez, and of course my brother chimed in there. Greatly appreciated to have him agree to be part of this show. Lots of fun conversation there. Lots of great old memories. Some of these things when you're growing up with siblings, you don't really, you may recollect them, but you don't know if they do and vice versa. So it's fun every once in a while to start talking about the old days and go, yeah, I remember that. I I was wondering if you remembered that too. So good stuff here this week. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. A real wrestling memory grenade exploded in that last conversation, but just a fun piece altogether talking with everyone about 1987 WWF and so on. And hey, the cat's out of the bag. Where are we going next in this project? Well, due to popular request, we're going to continue on with the World Wrestling Federation. As 1987 concludes, we will continue on into the year of 1988. Yes, the twin referee angle, Andre the Giant, the new WWF champion, selling his belt to Ted DiBiase. And of course, that epic night, WrestleMania four, new WWF champion crowned in the Macho Man Randy Savage. And that's only the first quarter of the year of 1988. So much to look at as we dive into the new year. But we're not quite there yet. Lots more 87 to come. In fact, next episode, we're going to look at all of the news and results for November of 1987 in the WWF. And hey, we've got that big, giant Survivor Series pay-per-view upcoming as well. So until then, just a reminder, check out all of my podcasts on the WrestleCopia Podcast Network over at WrestleCopia.com. Follow me on Twitter at WrestlingGrenade. Follow and like me at Facebook.com slash WrestlingGrenade. And of course, subscribe youtube.com slash wrestling grenade but most of all i'd really appreciate you guys giving it a try patreon.com slash wrestlecopia that address again patreon.com slash wrestle c-o-p-i-a that five dollar all access tier guys check it out so much there lots of content i think you guys enjoy it and tons more coming once the month of september arrives now with all of that out of the way i will be back we're back on track here on the grenade and i hope you guys enjoyed the 100th edition of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. But when we're back, it's episode 101. We're in the triple digits now, guys, and we're not turning back. So until then, this is Ray Russell saying from pillar to post and coast to coast, you pull the pin and I'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. I'll see you next week. Don't miss it. Be there!
Jimmy and I ate so much honey today that I am so excited. I got so much energy. Mean Gene, my toes started tapping and my wings started flapping. The thing that I love most is taking a man and putting him between my legs. Well, you know, when you talk about getting stiff, man, I'm getting up on this victory. You're disgusting. You're completely disgusting. Slap your face and put you against the wall. Well, let me tell you something there, Polyvo, Polyvo scrambled eggs. Let me tell you something right now, huh? You piece of slime! Hulkamania dies tonight! No worries, mate. I'm out back, Jack. That's right. I told him not to touch that midget. You never touch a midget. You never know where they've been. Give me a break. It's bad enough that you gotta take orders from a dog. <laughs> But you gotta take orders from a bitch. <laughs> I am Lord Alfred Hayes.